to enter out into that city that was the city at eight o'clock of a misty evening in November, to put your feet upon that buckling concrete, to step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Meade most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go, but it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone, and with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house, and on his way he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows, and it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night, or there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Mead would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels, and lights might click on and faces appear, and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure. Himself in the early November evening, on this particular evening he began his journey in a westerly direction, toward the hidden sea. There was a good crystal frost in the air, it cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a Christmas tree inside. You could feel the cold light going on and off, all the branches filled with invisible snow. He listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction, and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his, his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain, a wintry, windless Arizona desert with no house in a thousand miles and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz, a review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhausts, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed and moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. 
a metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Mead, he said. Speak up. Leonard Mead. Business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill-lit by television light, where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No profession, said the phonograph's voice, hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to sea. Your address? I live in South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. You have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? Every night for years. The police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? He asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click, as if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Lena Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. Two young people 
who had not long been married, were walking up and down the platform of a little country station. His arm was round her waist, her head was almost on his shoulder, and both were happy. The moon peeped up from the drifting cloudlets and frowned, as it seemed envying their happiness and regretting her tedious and, and utterly superfluous virginity. The still air was heavy with the fragrance of lilac and wild cherry. Somewhere in the distance, beyond the line, a corncrake was calling. How beautiful it is, Sasha. How beautiful, murmured the young wife. It all seemed like a dream. See how sweet and inviting that little corpse looks. How nice those solid, silent telegraph posts are. They add a special note to the landscape, suggesting humanity. Civilization in the distance. Don't you think it's lovely when the wind brings the rushing sound of a train? Yes, but what hot little hands you've got. That's because you're excited, Varya. What have you got for our supper tonight? Chicken and salad. It's a chicken just big enough for two. Then there is the salmon and the sardines. They were sent from town. The moon, as though she had taken a pinch of snuff, hid her face behind a cloud. Human happiness reminded her of her loneliness, and her solitary couch beyond the hills and dales. The train is coming, said Varya. How jolly. Three eyes of fire could be seen in the distance. The station master came out on the platform. Signal lights flashed here and there on the line. Let's see the train in and go home, said Sasha, yawning. What a splendid time we are having together, Varya. It's so splendid. One can hardly believe it's true. The dark monster crept noiselessly along the platform and came to a standstill. They caught glimpses of sleepy faces of hats and shoulders at the dimly lighted windows. Look, look, they heard from one of the carriages. Varya and Sasha had come to meet us. There they are. Varya, Varya, look. Two little girls skipped out of the train and hung on Varya's neck. They were followed by a stout middle-aged lady and a tall, lanky gentleman with gray whiskers. Behind them came two schoolboys laden with bags. And after the schoolboys, the governess. After the governess, the grandmother. Here we are, here we are, dear boy, began the whiskered gentleman, squeezing Sasha's hand. Sick of waiting for us, I expect. You've been pitching into your old uncle for not coming down all this time. I dare say, Kolya, Costa, Nina, Fifa, children... Kiss your cousin Sasha. We're all here, the whole troop of us, just for three or four days. I hope we shan't be too many of you. You mustn't let us put you out. At the sight of their uncle and his family, the young couple were horror-stricken. While his uncle talked and kissed them, Sasha had a vision on their little cottage, he and Varya giving up their three little rooms, all the pillows and bedding to their guest, the salmon, the sardines, the chicken, all devoured in a single instant, the cousins plucking the flowers in their little garden, spilling the ink, filled the cottage with noise and confusion. His aunt, talking continually about her ailments and her papa's, had been Baron von Vintage, and Sasha looked almost with hatred at his young wife and whispered, It's you they've come to see. Damn them. No, it's you, answered Varya, pale with anger. They're your relations, they're not mine. And turning to her visitors, she said with a smile of welcome, Welcome to the cottage. The moon came out again. She seemed to smile as though she were glad she had no relations. Sasha, turning his head away to hide his angry, despairing face, struggled to give a note of cordial welcome to his voice as he said, It is jolly of you. Welcome to the cottage. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting from room to room. They went hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure, a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here tool. It's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered. Quietly, they said, we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no, they're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it. 
one would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin, and then tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then. The apples were in the loft, and so down again. The garden still as ever. Only the book had slipped into the grass, but they had found it in the drawing room. Not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses. All the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was open, spread about the floor, hung upon the wall, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried the room. The pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then. But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare. Coolly sunk beneath the surface. The beam I sought always, burned behind the glass. Death was the glass, death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows. The rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the down. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly, the treasure yearned. The wind roars up the avenue, trees stoop and bend this way, and that. Moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain, but the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window. The candle burns stiff and still, wandering through the house, opening the windows, whispering not to wake us. The ghostly couple seek their joy. Here we slept, she says, and he adds kisses without number. Waking in the morning, silver between the tree, upstairs, in the garden, when summer came, in winter, in winter snow time, the doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway, the wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass, our eyes darken, we hear no steps behind us, we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak, his hands shield the lantern, look he breathes, sound asleep. The policeman on the beat moved up the avenue impressively. The impressiveness was habitual, not for show, for spectators were few. The time was barely ten o'clock at night, but chilly gusts of wind, with a taste of rain in them, had well nigh de-peopled the streets, trying doors as he went, twirling his club with many intricate and artful movements, turning now and then to cast his watchful eye adown the Pacific thoroughfare. The officer, with his stalwart form and slight swagger, made a fine picture of a guardian of the peace. The vicinity was one that kept early hours. Now and then you might see the lights of a cigar store or of an all-night lunch counter, but the majority of the doors belonged to business places that had long since been closed. When about midway of a certain block, the policeman suddenly slowed his walk. In the doorway of a darkened hardware store, a man leaned with an unlighted cigar in his mouth, as the policeman walked up to him, the man spoke up quickly. It's all right, officer, he said reassuringly. I'm just waiting for a friend. It's an appointment made 20 years ago. Sounds a little funny to you, doesn't it? Well, I'll explain if you'd like to make certain it's all straight. 
About that long ago, there used to be a restaurant where this store stands. Big Joe Brady's Restaurant. Until five years ago, said the policeman. It was torn down then. The man in the doorway struck a match and lit his cigar. The light showed a pale, square-jawed face with keen eyes and a little white scar near his right eyebrow. His scarf pin was a large diamond, oddly set. Twenty years ago tonight, said the man. I dined here at Big Joe Brady's with Jimmy Wells, my best chum and the finest chap in the world. He and I were raised here in New York, just like two brothers together. I was 18 and Jimmy was 20. The next morning I was to start for the West to make my fortune. I couldn't have dragged Jimmy out of New York. He thought it was the only place on earth, but we agreed that night that we would meet here again exactly 20 years from that date and time, no matter what our conditions might be or from what distance we might have to come. We figured that in 20 years each of us ought to have our destiny worked out, and our fortunes made, whatever they were going to be. Sounds pretty interesting, said the policeman. Rather a long time between meets, though, it seems to me. Haven't you heard from your friend since you left? Well, yes, for a time we corresponded, said the other. But after a year or two, we lost track of each other. You see, the West is a pretty big proposition. And I kept hustling around over it pretty lively. But I know Jimmy will meet me here, if he's alive. For he always was the truest, staunchest old chap in the world. He'll never forget. I came a thousand miles to stand in this door tonight. And it's worth it if my old partner turns up. The waiting man pulled out a handsome watch. The lids of it set with small diamonds. Three minutes to ten, he announced. It was exactly ten o'clock. It was exactly ten o'clock when we parted here at the restaurant door. Did pretty well out west, didn't you? asked the policeman. You bet. I hope Jimmy has done half as well. He was kind of a plotter, though. Good fellow as he was, I've had to compete with some of the sharpest wits going to get my pile. A man gets a groove in New York. It takes the West to put a, a razor edge on him. The policeman twirled his club and took a step or two. I'll be on my way. Hope your friend comes around all right. Going to call time on him sharp. I should say not, said the other. I'll give him half an hour at least. If Jimmy is alive on earth, he'll be here by that time. So long, officer. Good night, sir, said the policeman, passing on along his beat, trying doors as he went. There was now a fine cold drizzle falling, and the wind had risen from its uncertain puffs into a steady blow. The few foot passengers astir in that quarter hurried dismally and silently, along with coat collars turned high and pocketed hands, and in the door of the hardware store, the man who had come a thousand miles to fill an appointment, uncertain, almost to absurdity, with the friend of his youth, smoked his cigar and waited. About twenty minutes he waited, and then a tall man in a long overcoat, with collar turned up to his ears, hurried across from the opposite side of the street. He went directly to the waiting man. Is that you, Bob? he asked doubtfully. Is that you, Jimmy Wells? cried the man in the door. Bless my heart, exclaimed the new arrival, grasping both the other's hands with his own. It's Bob, sure as fate. I was certain I'd find you here if you were still in existence. Well, well, well. Twenty years is a long time. The old gone by, Bob. I wish it had lasted so we could have another dinner there. How has the West treated you, old man? Bully, it has given me everything I asked it for. You've changed lots, Jimmy. I never thought you were so tall by two or three inches. Oh, I grew a bit after I was twenty. Doing well in New York, Jimmy. Moderately. I've a position in one of the city department. Come on, Bob, we'll go around to a place I know of and have a good long talk about old times. The two men started up the street, arm in arm. Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Did the scientists really know? Will it happen today? Will it? Look, look. See for yourself.
The children pressed to each other like so many roses, so many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years, thousands upon thousands of days, compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain, with the drum and gush of water, with sweet crystal fall of showers, and the concussion of storms so heavy that they were tidal waves come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain, and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus. And this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping. Yes, yes, Margaret stood apart from them, from these children who could even remember a time when there wasn't rain, and rain and rain. They were all nine years old, and if there had been a day seven years ago, when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes, at night, she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming, and remembering gold, or yellow crayon, or a coin large enough to buy the world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face and the body, and the arms and legs and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum, the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces upon the roof, the walk, the gardens, the forest, and their dreams were gone. All day yesterday they had read in class about the sun, about how like a lemon it was and how hot, and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it. I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just an hour. That was Marga's poem, read in a quiet voice in the still classroom, while the rain was falling outside. Oh, you didn't write that, protested one of the boys. I did, said Margaret. I did, William, said the teacher. But that was yesterday. Now the rain was slackening, and the children were crushed in great thick windows. Where's the teacher? She'll be back. She'd better hurry. We'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margaret stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost in the rain for years. And the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes and red from her mouth and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph dusted from an album, whitened away. If she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood, separate, staring at the rain and the loud wet world beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at, said William. Margaret said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove, but she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away. And this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness and life and, ga <coughs> and games... Her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun and the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then, of course, the biggest crime of all was that she had come only five years. <coughs> was that she had come here only five years ago from Earth, and she remembered the sun, and the sky was when she was four in Ohio, and they—they they had been on Venus all their lives, and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out. 
It had long since forgotten the color and heat of it, and the way it really was. But Margaret remembered. It's like a penny, she said once, eyes closed. No, it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them, watching the pattern <coughs> and watched the patterning window. And once a month ago, she'd refused to shower in the school shower rooms, had clutched her hands to her, he her ears over her head, screaming the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly she sensed it. She was different, and they knew her difference, and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year. It seemed vital to her that they do so. It would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family, and so the children hated her for all these reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away, the boy gave her another shove. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time she turned and looked at him, and looked at him, and what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him, and then, understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Oba Margaret whispered, her eyes hopelessly. But this is the day. The scientists predict. They say. They know. The sun. All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margaret, falling back. They surged about her caught her up and bore her protesting and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel a room a closet where they slammed door where they slammed and locked the door they stood looking at the door and saw it trembled from her beating and throwing herself against it they th they heard her muffled cries then smiling they turned and went out back down the tunnel just as the teacher arrived ready children she glanced at her watch yes said everyone are we all here yes the rain slacked still more. They crowded to the huge door and the rain stopped. It was as if the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption. Something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus, thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise, all the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and then second ripped the film <coughs> ripped the film from the protect projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide, which did not move or tremor. The world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed, or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back, and the smell of the silent, waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze, and it was very large, and the and the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color, and the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the, the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? Much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus, that grew and never stopped growing, tumultuously, even as you watched it. 
It was a nest of octopi clustering up, great arms of flesh-like weed wavering, flowering in this brief springtime. It was the color of reverend ash, this jungle from the many years without sun. It was the color of stones and white cheeses and ink. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress and heard a sigh and squeak under the resilient and alive. They ran among the trees. They slipped and fell. They pushed each other. They played hide-and-seek and tag. But most of all, they squinted at the sun until tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to the yellowness and that amazing blueness and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air and listened and listened to the silence which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running. And then, in the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. One autumn I went to spend the hunting season with some friends in a chateau in Picardy. My friends were fond of practical jokes. I do not care to know people who are not. When I arrived they gave me a princely reception, which at once awakened suspicion in my mind. They fired off rifles, embraced me, made much of me, as if they expected to have great fun at my expense. I said to myself, look out old ferret. They have something in store for you. During the dinner, the mirth was excessive, exaggerated, in fact. I thought, here are people who have more than their share of amusement, and apparently without reason, they must have planned some good joke. Assuredly, I am to be the victim of the joke. Attention. During the entire evening, everyone laughed in an exaggerated fashion. I scented a practical joke in the air, as a dog scents game. But what was it? I was watchful, restless. I did not let a word or a meaning or a gesture escape me. Everyone seemed to me an object of suspicion, and I even looked distrustfully at the face of the servants. The hour struck for retiring, and the whole household came to escort me to my room. Why? They called to me good night. I entered the apartment, shut the door, and remained standing. Without moving a single step, holding the wax candle in my hand, I heard laughter and whispering in the corridor. Without doubt, they were spying on me. I cast a glance around the walls, the furniture, the ceiling, the hangings, the floor. I saw nothing to justify suspicion. I heard persons moving about outside my door. I had no doubt they were looking through the keyhole. An idea came into my head. My candle may suddenly go out and leave me in darkness. Then I went across to the mantelpiece and lighted all the wax candles that were on it. After that, I cast another glance around me. Without discovering anything, I advanced with short step, carefully examining the apartment. Nothing. I inspected every article, one after the other. Still nothing. I went over to the window. The shutters. Large wooden shutters were open. I shut them with great care, and then drew the curtains, enormous velvet curtains, and placed a chair in front of them so as to have nothing to fear from outside. Then I cautiously sat down. The armchair was solid. I did not venture to get into the bed. However, the night was advancing. I ended by coming to the conclusion that I was foolish. If they were spying on me as I supposed, they must. While waiting for the success of their joke, they had been preparing for me, have been laughing immoderately at my terror. So I made up my mind to go to bed. But the bed was particularly suspicious looking. I pulled at the curtains. They seemed to be secure. 
All the same, there was danger. I was going perhaps to receive a cold shower, both from overhead, or perhaps the moment I stretched myself out, to find myself sinking to the floor with my mattress. I searched in my memory for all the practical jokes of which I ever had experienced, and I did not want to be caught. Ah, certainly not, certainly not. Then I suddenly bethought myself of a precaution which I considered ensured safety. I caught hold of the side of the mattress gingerly, and very slowly drew it toward me. It came away, followed by the sheets and the rest of the bedclothes. I dragged all these objects into the very middle of the room, facing the entrance door. I made my bed over again as best I could, at some distance from the suspected bedstead, and the corner which had been filled with such anxiety. Then I extinguished all the candles, and groping my way, I slipped under the bedclothes. For at least another hour, I remained awake, staring at the slightest sound. Everything seemed quiet in the chateau, and I fell asleep. I fell asleep. I must have been in deep sleep for a long time, but all of a sudden I was awakened with a start with the fall of a heavy body tumbling right on top of my own, and at the same time I received on my face, on my neck, and on my chest a burning liquid which made me utter a Borrowing a Match by Stephen Leacock You might think that borrowing a match upon the street is a simple thing, but any man who has ever tried it will assure you that it is not and will be prepared to swear to the truth of my experience of the other evening. I was standing on the corner of the street with a cigar that I wanted to light. I had no match. I waited till a decent, ordinary-looking man came along. Then I said, Excuse me, sir, but could you oblige me with the loan of a match? A match, he said. Why, certainly. Then he unbuttoned his overcoat and put his hand in the pocket of his waistcoat. I know I have one, he went on, and I'd almost swear it's in the bottom pocket. Or hold on, though. I guess it may be in the top. Just wait till I put the parcels down on the sidewalk. Oh, don't trouble, I said. It's really of no consequence. Oh, it's no trouble. I'll have it in a minute. I know there must be one in here somewhere. He was digging his fingers into his pocket as he spoke. But you see, this isn't the waistcoat I generally... I saw that the man was getting excited about it. Well, never mind, I protested. That isn't the waistcoat you generally... Why, it doesn't matter. Now hold on, the man said. I've got one of the cursed things in here somewhere. I guess it must be in with my watch. No, it's not there either. Wait till I try my coat. If that confounded tailor only knew enough to make a pocket so that a man could get at it. He was getting pretty well worked up now. He'd thrown down his walking stick and was plunging at his pockets with his teeth set. It's that cursed young boy of mine, he hissed. This comes of his fouling my pockets. By God, perhaps I won't harm him up when I get home. Say, I'll bet that it's in my hip pocket. You just hold up the tail of my overcoat a second till I... No, no, I protested again. Please don't. Take all this trouble. It really doesn't matter. I'm sure you needn't take off your overcoat. And oh, pray don't throw away your letters and things in the snow like that. I'm writing this under appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think for my slavery to morphine that I am weakling or degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, but never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize. Whilst we of her crew were treated with all fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners, 
So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess, vaguely by the sun and stars, that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days, I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship would be cast on the shores of some uninhabitable land, but neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair my solitude upon hearing vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. My slumber, though, troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I was awakened, it was to discover myself, half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations, as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. But one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation. Of scenery I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things, which I saw protruded from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight, save a vast reach of black slime, yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under the unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me, I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean. Strain my ears as I might, nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling. Purposes in a short time that night, I slept but little. The next day, I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight and evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily east-westward, guided by a far hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day was still traveled toward the hummock. Though the object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it, by the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance. The intervening valley, setting it out sharp from relief, the general surface. Too wary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the warning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I had said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side in an immeasurable pit of ore canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to loom. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. 
through the terror ran reminiscent of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easily footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual, urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze. I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler, gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself. But I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with a sensation I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost slapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphs unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fish, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things, which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on an ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carvings, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water, on account of their enormous size, were an array of boss relief, whose subject could have excited the envy of a door. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, Though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage to some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well, with their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a poe or a buller, there was damnably human in the general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy bulging eyes, and other featureless, pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, there seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale, represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fish or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished, eras before the ancestors of the pit downer Neanderthal man was born awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist. I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it, with only a slight churning to, its, to mark its rise to the surface. The thing slid into view above the dark waters, vast, polyphemous, and loathsome, and darted with a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith. The clangor of the swords had died away. The shouting of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow, 
and pale bleak sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice field and the snow-covered plain struck sheens of silver from rent corslet and broken blade where the dead lay in heaps the nerveless hand had gripped the broken hilt helmeted heads back drawn in the death throes tilted red beards and golden beards grimly upward as if in last invocation to ymir the frost giant across the red drifts and mail-clad forms two figures approached one another in that utter desolation only they moved the frosty sky was over them the white illimitable plain around them the dead men at their feet slowly through the corpses they came as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a world their shields were gone their corslets dinted blood smeared their mail their swords were red their horned helmets showed the marks of fierce strokes one spoke he whose locks and beards were red as blood on the sunlit snow man of the raven locks said he tell me your name so that my brothers in vanheim may know who was the last of wolfhir's band to fall before the sword of heimdall this is my answer replied the black-haired warrior not in vanheim but in valhalla will you tell your brothers the name amra of akbitana heimdall roared and sprang his sword swung in a mighty arc amra staggered and his vision was filled with red sparks as the blade shivered into bits of blue fire on his helmet but as he reeled he thrust with all the power of his great shoulders the sharp point drove through brass scales bones and heart the red-haired warrior died at amra's feet amra stood swaying trailing his sword a sudden sick weariness assailing him the glare of the sun on the snow cut his eyes like a knife and the sky seemed shrunken and strangely far he turned away from the trampled expanse where yellow-bearded warriors lay locked with red-haired slayers in the embrace of death a few steps he took and the glare of the snowfields was suddenly dimmed a rushing wave of blindness engulfed him and he sank down in the snow supporting himself on one mailed arm seeking to shake the blindness out of his eyes as lion might shake his mane a silvery laugh cut through his dizziness and his sight cleared slowly there was a strangeness about all the landscape that he could not place or define an unfamiliar tinge to earth and sky but he did not think long of this before him swaying like a sapling in the wind stood a woman her body was like ivory and save for a veil of gossamer she was naked as the day her slender bare feet were whiter than the snow they spurned she laughed and her laughter was sweeter than the rippling of silvery fountains and poisonous with cruel mockery who are you demanded the warrior what matter her voice was more musical than a silver stringed harp but it was edged with cruelty call up your men he growled grasping his sword though my strength fail me yet they shall not take me alive i see that you are of the vanir have i said so he looked again at her unruly lock she had thought to be red now he saw that they were neither red nor yellow but a glorious compound of both colors he gazed spellbound her hair was like elfin gold striking which the sun dazzled him her eyes were neither wholly blue nor wholly gray but of the shifting colors and dancing lights and clouds of colors he could not recognize her full red lips smiled and from her slim feet the blinding crown of her billowy hair her ivory body was as perfect as the dream of a god amra's pulse hammered in his temple i cannot tell said he whether you of vanaheim and mine enemy or of asgard and my friend far have i wandered from zingara to the sea of Iliet, in stygia and cush and the country of hyrcanians but a woman like you i have never seen 
Your locks blind me with their brightness. Not even among the fairest daughters of the Aesir have I seen such hair. By Ymir. Who are you to swear by Ymir? She mocked. What know of the gods of ice and snow? You who've come up from the south to adventure among strangers. By the dark gods of my own race, he cried. Have I been backward in the sword place, stranger or no? This day I have seen four score warriors fall, and I alone survived the field. Where Mulfier's reavers met the men of Bragi. Tell me, woman, have you caught the flash of mail across the snow plains, or seen armored men moving upon the ice? I have seen the hoarfrost glittering in the sun, she answered. I have heard the wind whispering across the everlasting snow. He shook his head. Niord should have come up with us before the battle joined. I fear he and his warriors have been ambushed. Wolfier lies dead with all his weapon men. I had thought there was no village within many leagues of this spot, for the war carried us far. But you can have come no great distance over these snows, naked as you are. Lead me to your tribe, if you are of Asgard, for I am faint with the weariness of strife. My dwelling place is further than you can walk, Amra of Akpatana. She laughed, spreading wide her arms she swayed before him, her golden head lolling wantonly, her scintillating eyes shadowed beneath the long silken lashes. Am I not beautiful, man? Like dawn running naked on the snows, he muttered, his eyes burning like those of a wolf. Then why do you not rise and follow me? Who is the strong warrior who falls down before me? She chanted in maddening mockery. Lie down and die in the snow with the other fools, Amra of the black hair. You cannot follow where I would lead. With an oath, the man heaved himself upon his feet, his blue eyes blazing, his dark scarred face convulsed. Rage shook his soul, but desire for the taunting figure before him hammered at his temples and drove his wild blood riotlessly through his veins. Passion, fierce as physical agony, flooded his whole being so that earth and sky swam red to his dizzy gaze, and weariness and faintness were swept from him in madness. He spoke no word as he drove at her fingers, hooked like talons. With a shriek of laughter, she leaped back and ran, laughing at him over her white shoulder. With a low growl, Amra followed. He had forgotten the fight forgotten the mailed warriors who lay in their blood, forgotten Niord's belated reaver. He had thought only for the slender white shape which seemed to float, rather than run before him. Out across the white blinding plain she led him. The trampled red field fell out of sight behind him. But still, Emra kept on with the silent tenacity of his race. His mailed feet broke through the frozen crust. He sank deep in the drifts and forged through them by sheer strength. But the girl danced across the snow, as light as a feather floating across a pool. Her naked feet scarcely left their imprint on the hoarfrost in spite of the fire in its veins. The cold bit through the warrior's mail and furs, but the girl in her gossamer veil ran as lightly and as gaily as she danced through the palms and rose gardens of Pontaine. Black curses drooled through the warrior's parched lips. The great veins swelled and throbbed in his temples, teeth gnashed spasmodically. You cannot escape me, he roared. Lead me into a trap and I'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet. Hide from me and I'll tear apart the mountains to find you. I'll follow you to hell and beyond hell. Her maddening laughter floated back to him 
and foam flew from the warrior's lips further and further into the waste she led him till he saw wide plains give way to low hills marching upward in broken ranges far to the north he caught a glimpse of towering mountains blue with the distance or white with the eternal snows above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the borealis they spread fan-wise into the sky frosty blades of cold flaming light changing in color growing and brightening above him the skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams the snow shone weirdly now frosty blue now icy crimson now cold silver through a shimmering icy realm of enchantment amra plunged doggedly onward in a crystalline maze where the only reality was the white body dancing across the glittering snow ever beyond his reach yet he did not wonder at the necromantic strangeness of it all now even when two gigantic figures rose up to bar his way the scales of their mail were white with hoarfrost their helmets and their axes were sheathed in ice snow sprinkled their locks and their beards or spikes of icicles their eyes were cold to the light that streamed above them brothers cried the girl dancing between them look who follows i've brought you a man for the feast take his heart that we may lay it smoking on our father's board the giants answered with roars like the grinding of icebergs on a frozen shore and heaved up their shining axes the maddening akbitanan hurled himself upon them a frosty blade flashed before his eyes blinding him with his brightness and he gave back a terrible stroke that sheared through his foe's thigh with a groan the victim fell and at the instant Amor was dashed into the snow, his left shoulder numb from the blow of the survivor, from which the warrior's mail had barely saved his life. Amra saw the remaining giant looming above him like a colossus carved of ice etched against the glowing sky. The axe fell to sink through the snow and deep into the frost earth as Amra hurled himself aside and leapt to his feet. The giant roared and wrenched the axe head free. Even as he did so, Amra's sword sang down. The giant's knees bent and he sank slowly into the snow, which turned crimson with the blood that gushed from his half-severed neck. Amra wheeled to see the girl standing a short distance away, staring in wide-eyed horror. All mockery gone from her face, he cried out fiercely, and the blood drops flew from his sword. As his hand shook in the intensity of his passion, Call the rest of your brothers, he roared. Call the dogs, I'll give their hearts to the wolves. With a cry of fright, she turned and fled. She did not laugh now, nor mock him over her shoulder. She ran as for her life, and though he strained every nerve and thew, until his temples were like to burst in the snow, swam red to his gaze. She drew away from him, dwindling in the witch fires of the skies, until she was a figure no bigger than a child, then a dancing white flame on the snow, then a dim blur in the distance, but grinding his teeth until the blood started from his gums. He reeled on, and he saw the blur grow to a dancing white flame, and then she was running less than a hundred paces ahead of him, and slowly the space narrowed foot by foot. She was running with effort now, her golden locks blowing free. He heard the quick panting of her breath, saw a flash of fear, in the look she cast over her alabaster shoulder, grim endurance of the warrior had served him well. Speed ebbed from her flashing white legs. She reeled in her gait, and in his untamed soul flamed up the fires of hell. She had fanned so well with an inhuman roar. He closed in on her, just as she wheeled with a haunting cry, and flung out her arms to fend him off. His sword fell on the snow as he crushed her to him. 
Her supple body bent backward as she fought with desperate frenzy in his iron arms. Her golden hair blew about her face, blinding him with its sheen. The feel of her slender figure, twisted in his mailed arms, drove him to blind her madness. Strong fingers sank deep in her smooth flesh, and that flesh was cold as ice, as if he embraced not a woman of human flesh and blood, but a woman of flaming ice. She writhed her golden head aside, striving to avoid the savage kisses that bruised her red lips. You are cold as the snow, he mumbled dazedly. I will warm you with the fire in my blood. With a desperate wrench, she twisted from his arms, leaving her single gossamer garment in his grasp. She sprang back and faced him, her golden locks in the wild disarray, her white bosom heaving, her beautiful eyes blazing with terror. For an instant he stood frozen, awed by her terrible beauty, as she posed naked against the snows. And in that instant, she flung her arms towards the lights that glowed in the skies above her, and cried out in a voice that rang in Amra's ears forever after. Ymir, O oh my father, save me. Amra was leaping forward, arms spread to seize her, when with a crack like the breaking of an ice mountain, the whole skies leaped into icy fire. The girl's ivory body was suddenly enveloped in a cold blue flame, so blinding that the warrior threw up his hands to shield his eyes. A fleeting instant, skies and snowy hills were bathed in crackling white, flames, blue darts of icy light, frozen crimson fires. Then Amra staggered and cried out. The girl was gone. The glowing snow lay empty and bare. High above him, the witch lights flashed and played in a frosty sky gone mad. Among the distant blue mountains, there sounded a rolling thunder, as of a gigantic war chariot rushing behind steeds whose frantic hooves struck lightning from the snows and echoes from the skies. And suddenly the borealis, the snowy hills, and the blazing heavens reeled drunkenly to amorous sight. Thousands of fireballs burst with showers of sparks, and the sky itself became a titanic wheel, which rained stars as it spun under his feet. The snowy hills heaved up like a wave, and Actanon crumpled into the snows to lie motionless in a cold, dark universe whose sun was extinguished eons ago. Amra felt the movement of life. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anyone else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right. Though April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in the clammy months that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks. She'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. 
His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a really pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little bit about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good. No better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They, burdened, they were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far into it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced, so did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel. A little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only if I was handicapped or general. You know what I would do? Said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general. A woman di named Diana Moon Glampers. If it was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think, I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail. About Harrison, but a 21-gun salute and his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rim of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa, so you can rest your handicap bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag which was padlocks around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. There was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls. Just a few. Two years in prison and two thousand dollar fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take out a few, when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I try to get away with it, said George, then other people'd get away with it. Pretty soon we'd be right back to the dark ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to stay, ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, said Hazel, said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. 
Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin, she must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous, and it was easy to see that she was the strongest, most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by two hundred pound men, and she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was warm and luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said. She began again making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He's a genius and an athlete, is under-handicapped, and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then again sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background, calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever been born heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him a wanging headache besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard in the race of life. Harrison carried 300 pounds, and to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and covered his even white teeth with black caps at snaggletooth random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Scream and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and while he might have, for many was the time, his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen, clanking, clownish, and huge. Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the, up of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the Emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the Emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, and sickened. I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Four straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the, under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares to rise to her feet claim her mate in her throne. A moment passed, and then again, and then a ballerina rose, swaying like a willow. 
Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and... At Denver, there was an influx of passengers into the coaches on the eastbound B&M Express. In one coach, there sat a very pretty young woman dressed in elegant taste and surrounded by all the luxurious comforts of an experienced traveler. Among the newcomers were two young men, one of handsome presence with a bold, frank countenance and manner, the other a ruffled, glum-faced person, heavily built and roughly dressed. The two were handcuffed together. As they passed down the aisle of the coach, the only vacant seat offered was a reversed one facing the attractive young woman. Here the linked couple seated themselves. The young woman's glance fell upon them with a distant, swift disinterest. Then with a lovely smile brightening her countenance and a tender pink tinging her round cheeks, she held out a little gray gloved hand. When she spoke her voice, full, sweet, and deliberate, proclaimed that its owner was accustomed to speaking and being heard. Well, Mr. Easton, if you will make me speak first, I suppose I must. Don't you ever recognize old friends when you meet them in the West? The younger man roused himself sharply at the sound of her voice, seemed to struggle with a slight embarrassment, which he threw off instantly, then clasped her fingers with his left hand. It's Miss Fairchild, he said with a smile. I'll ask you to excuse the other hand, it's otherwise engaged just at the present. He slightly raised his right hand, bound at the wrist by the shining bracelet, to the left one of his companion. The glad look in the girl's eyes slowly changed to a bewildered horror. The glow faded from her cheeks, her lips parted in a vague, relaxing distress. Easton, with a little laugh as if amused, was about to speak again when the other forestalled him. The glum-faced man had been watching the girl's countenance with veiled glances from his keen, shrewd eye. You'll excuse me for speaking, miss, but I see you're acquainted with the marshal here. If you'll ask him to speak a word for me, when we get to the pen, he'll do it, and it'll make things easier for me there. He's taking me to Leavenworth Prison. It's seven years for counterfeiting. Oh, said the girl with a deep breath and returning color. So that is what you were doing out here. A marshal. My dear Miss Fairchild, said Easton calmly. I had to do something. Money has a way of taking wings unto itself. And you know it takes money to keep step with a crowd in Washington. I saw this opening in the West, and well, a marshalship isn't quite as high a position as that of an ambassador, but... The ambassador, said the girl warmly, doesn't call anymore. He needn't ever have done so. You ought to know that. And so now you're one of those dashing western heroes, and you ride and shoot and go into all kinds of danger. That's different from the Washington life. You've been missed from the old crowd. The girl's eyes, fascinated, went back and forth, widening a little to rest upon the glittering handcuffs. Don't you worry about them, miss, said the other man. All marshals handcuff themselves to their prisoners to keep them from getting away. Mr. Easton knows his business. Will we see you again in Washington, asked the girl. Not soon, I think, said Easton. My butterfly days are over, I fear. I love the West, said the girl irreverently. 
Her eyes were shining softly. She looked away out the car window, and she began to speak truly and simply without the gloss of style and manner. Mama and I spent the summer in Denver. She went home a week ago because father was slightly ill. I could live and be happy in the West. I think the air here agrees with me. Money isn't everything, but people always misunderstand these things and remain stupid. Say Mr. Marshall, growled the glum-faced man. This isn't quite fair. I'm needing a drink and haven't had a smoke all day. Haven't you talked He saw her from the bottom of the stairs. Before she saw him, she was starting down, looking back over her shoulder at some fear. She took a doubtful step and then undid it to raise herself and look again. He spoke, advancing toward her. What is it you see, from up there always, for I want to know. She turned and sank upon her skirts at that, and her face changed from terrified to dull. He said to gain time, what is it you see, mounting until she cowered under him. I will find out now, you must tell me, dear. She, in her place, refused him any help, with the least stiffening of her neck in silence. She let him look, sure that he wouldn't see blind creature, and a while he didn't see, but at last he murmured, oh, and again oh, what is it, what, she said, just that I see, you don't, she challenged, tell me what it is, the wonder is, I didn't see it once, I never noticed it from here before, I must be wanted to it, that's the reason, the little graveyard where my people are, so small the window frames the whole of it, not so much than a large bedroom is it, there are three stones of slate, and one of marble, broad-shouldered little slabs there in the sunlight, on the side hill. We haven't to mind those, but I understand it is not the stones, but the child's mound. Don't, 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 she cried. She withdrew, shrinking from beneath his arm, that rested on the banister, and slid downstairs, and turned on him with such a daunting look. He said twice over before he knew himself, Can't a man speak of his own child he's lost? Not you. Oh, where is my hat? Oh, I don't need it. I must get out of here. I must get air. I don't know rightly whether any man can. Amy, don't go to someone else this time. Listen to me. I won't come down the stairs. He sat and fixed his chin between his fists. There's something I should like to ask you, dear. You don't know how to ask it. Help me then. Her fingers moved the latch for all reply. My words are nearly always an offense. I don't know how to speak of anything so as to please you. But I might be taught. I should suppose. I can't say I see how. A man must partly give up being a man with women folk. We could have some arrangement by which I'd blind myself to keep hands off anything special you're a mind to name. Though I don't like such things twixt those that love. Two that don't love can't live together without them. But two that do can't live together with them. She moved the latch a little. Don't. Don't go. Don't carry it to someone else this time. Tell me about it. If it's something human, let me into your grief. I'm not so much, unlike other folks, as your standing there apart would make me out. Give me my chance. I do think, though, you overdo it a little. What was it brought you up to think it the thing to take your mother's loss of a first child so inconsolably? In the face of love, you'd think his memory might be satisfied. There you go sneering. I'm not, I'm not. You make me angry. I'll come down to you. God, what a woman. And it's come to this. A man can't speak of his own child that's dead. You can't because you don't know how to speak. If you had any feelings, you that dug, with your own hand, how could you? His little grave. I saw you from that very window there, making the gravel leap and leap in the air. Leap up like that, like that, and land so lightly, and roll back down the mound beside the hole. I thought, 
Who is that man? I didn't know you. I crept down the stairs and up the stairs to look again, and I still see your spade keep lifting. Then you come in. I heard your rumbling voice out in the kitchen, and I don't know why, but I went near to see with my own eyes. You could sit there with the stains on your shoes, of the fresh earth from your own baby's grave, and talk about your everyday concerns. You had stood the spade up against the wall, outside there in the entry, for I saw it. I shall laugh the worst laugh I've ever laughed. I'm cursed. God, if I don't believe I'm cursed. I can repeat the very words you are saying. Three foggy mornings and one rainy day will rot the rest birch fence a man can build. Think of it. Talk like that at such a time. What had how long it takes a birch to rot? To do with what was in the darkened parlor, you couldn't care. The nearest friends can go with anyone to death. Come so far short. They might as well not try to go at all. No, from the time when one is sick to death, one is alone, and he dies more alone. Friends make pretense of following to the grave, but before one is in it, their minds are turned, and making the best of their way back to life and living people and things they understand. But the world's evil. I won't have grief, so if I can change it, oh, I won't, I won't. There you have it all. There you have said it all, and you feel better. You won't go now. You're crying. Close the door. The heart's gone out of it. Why keep it up, Amy? There's someone coming down the road. You, oh. You think the talk is all. I must go. Somewhere out of this house. How can I make you? If you do, she was opening the door wider. Where do you mean to go? First tell me that. I'll follow and bring you back by force. I will. The sun had set. The great shadows came striding over the forest in the weird twilight of a late summer day. I saw the path ahead glide on among the mighty trees and disappear, and I shuddered and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. Miles behind lay the nearest village, miles ahead the next. I looked to left and to right as I strode on, and anon I looked behind me, and anon I stopped short, grasping my rapier as a breaking twig betoken the going of some small beast or was it a beast but the path led on and i followed because forsooth i had naught else to do as i went i bethought me my own thoughts will rout me if i be not aware what is there in this forest except perhaps the creatures that roam it deer and the like tush the foolish legend of those villagers and so i went and the twilight faded into dusk. Stars began to blink, and the leaves of the trees murmured in the faint breeze. And then I stopped short, my sword leaping to my hand, for just ahead, around a curve of the path, someone was singing. The words I could not distinguish, but the accent was strange, almost barbaric. I stepped behind a great tree, and the cold sweat beat through my forehead. Then the singer came in sight, a tall, thin man, vague in the twilight. I shrugged my shoulders, a man I did not fear. I sprang out, my point raised. Stand! He showed no surprise. I prithee handle thy blade with care, friend, he said. Somewhat ashamed, I lowered my sword. I am new to this forest, I quoth apologetically. I heard talk of bandits. I crave pardon. Where lies the road to Villafir? Corblu, you've missed it, he answered. You should have branched off to the right some distance back. I am going there myself, if you may abide my company, I will direct you. I hesitated. Yet why should I hesitate? Why, certainly. My name is de Montour of Normandy, and I am Carolus Le Loup. No, I started back. He looked at me in astonishment. Pardon, said I. The name is strange. Does not Loup mean wolf? My family were always great hunters, he answered. 
He did not offer his hand. You will pardon my staring, said I, as we walked down the path. But I can hardly see your face in the dusk. I sensed that he was laughing, though he made no sound. It is little to look upon, he answered. I stepped closer, then leaped away, my hair bristling. A mask, I exclaimed. Why do you wear a mask, Masoo? It is a vow, he exclaimed. I'm fleeing a pack of hounds. I vowed that if I escaped, I would wear a mask for a certain time. Hounds, Masoo? Wolves, he answered quickly. I said wolves. We walked in silence for a while, and then my companion said, I'm surprised that you walk these woods by night. Few people come these ways, even in the day. I am in haste to reach the border, I answered. A treaty has been signed with the French, and the Duke of Burgundy should know of it. The people at the village sought to dissuade me. They spoke of a wolf that was purported to roam these woods. Here the path branches to Villaferre, said he and I saw a narrow, crooked path that I had not seen when I passed it before. It led in amidst the darkness of the trees. I shuddered. You wish to return to the village? No, I exclaimed. No, no. Lead on. So narrow was the path that we walked, single file, he leading. I looked well at him. He was taller, much taller than I, and thin, wiry. He was dressed in a costume that smacked of Spain. A long rapier swung at his hip. He walked with long, easy strides, noiselessly. Then he began to talk of travel and adventure. He spoke of many lands and seas he had seen and many strange things. So we talked and went farther and farther into the forest. I presumed that he was French, yet he had a very strange accent that was neither French nor Spanish nor English, not like any language I had ever heard. Some words he slurred strangely, and some he could not pronounce at all. This path is often used, is it? I asked. Not by many, he answered and laughed silently. I shuddered. It was very dark, and the leaves whispered together among the branches. A fiend haunts this forest, I said. So the peasants say, he answered. But I have roamed it oft and have never seen his face. Then he began to speak of strange creatures of darkness, and the moon rose, and shadows glided among the trees. He looked up at the moon. Haste, said he. We must reach our destination before the moon reaches her zenith. We hurried along the trail. They say, said I, that a werewolf haunts these woodlands. It might be, said he, and we argued much upon the subject. The old women say, said he, that if a werewolf is slain while a wolf, then he's slain. But if he is slain as a man, then his half-soul will haunt his slayer forever. But haste thee, the moon nears her zenith. We came into a small moonlit glade, and the stranger stopped. Let us pause a while, said he. Nay, let us be gone, I urged. I like not this place. He laughed without sound. Why, said he, this is a fair glade, as good as a banquet hall it is, and many times have I feasted here. Ha ha ha, look ye, I will show you a dance. And he began bounding here and there, anon flinging back his head and laughing silently. Thought I, this man is mad. As he danced his weird dance, I looked about me. The trail went not on, but stopped in the glade. Come, said I, we must on. Do you not smell the rank, hairy scent that hovers about the glade? Wolves den here. Perhaps they are about us, and are gliding upon us even now. He dropped upon all fours, bounded higher than my head, and came toward me with a strange, slinking motion. That dance is called the Dance of the Wolf, said he, and my hair bristled. Keep off. I stepped back with a screeching that set
Outside, a woman walked along the wet street lamp-lit sidewalk through the sleet and snow. Inside, in the Fine Arts Institute of the sixth floor of the YWCA building, 1020 McGee Street, a merry crowd of soldiers from Camp Funston and Fort Leavenworth Fox trotted and one-stepped with girls from the Fine Arts School while a sober-faced young man pounded out the latest jazz music as he watched the moving figure. In a corner, a private in the Signal Corps was discussing Whistler with a black-haired girl who heartily agreed with him. The private had been a member of the art colony at Chicago before the war was declared. Three men from Funston were wandering arm-in-arm along the walls, looking at the exhibition of paintings by Kansas City artists. The piano player stopped. The dancers clapped and cheered, and he swung into the long, long trail of winding, and the infantry corporal, dancing with a swift-moving girl in a red dress, bent his head close to hers and provided something about a girl in Chautauqua, Kansas. In the corridor, a group of girls surrounded a tow-headed young artilleryman and applauded his imitation of his pal Bill, challenging the colonel who had forgotten the password. The music stopped again, and the solemn pianist rose from his stool and walked out into the hall for a drink. A crowd of men rushed up to the girl in the red dress to plead for the next dance. Outside, the woman walked along the wet, lamp-lit sidewalk. It was the first dance for soldiers to be given under the auspices of the War Camp Community Service. Forty girls of the art school, chaperoned by Miss Winifred Sexton, secretary of the school, and Miss J.F. Binney, were the hostesses. The idea was formulated by J.P. Robertson of the War Camp Community Service. Announcements were sent to the Commandant at Camp Funston in Fort Leavenworth, inviting all soldiers on leave. Posters made by the girl students were put up at Leavenworth on the interim and trains. The first dance will be followed by others at various clubs and schools throughout the city, according to Mr. Robertson. The pianist took his seat again, and the soldiers made it ask for partners. In the intermission, the When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and I attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to $50 a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must need consult the manager. I went up to a wicket-marked accountant. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. My voice was sepulchral. Can I see the manager, I said, and added solemnly, alone. I don't know why, I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. Are you the manager? I said. God knows I didn't doubt it. Yes, he said. Can I see you? I asked. Alone? I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption in here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of Pinkerton's men, I presume, he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, not from the Pinkertons, I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on, as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I'm not a detective at all. I have come to open account. 
I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was a son of Baron Rothschild or a young ghoul. A large account, I suppose, he said. Fairly large, I whispered. I proposed to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant. Mr. Montgomery, he said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. We'll deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement, as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here, I said, to posit it. The tone of the words seemed to mean, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and signed my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. The bank swam before my eyes. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow, vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out six dollars of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket. Someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the clerk. He looked at it. What? Are you drawing it all out again? He asked in surprise. Then I realized I had written fifty-six instead of six. I was too far gone now for reason. I had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing. All the clerks had, st had stopped. Monday dawned warm and rainless. Aurelio Escobar, a dentist without a degree, and a very early riser, opened his office at six. He took some false teeth still mounted in their plaster mold out of the glass case and put on the table a fistful of instruments, which he arranged in size order as if they were on display. He wore a collarless striped shirt, closed at the neck with a golden stud, and pants held up by suspenders. He was erect and skinny with a look that rarely corresponded to the situation, the way deaf people have of looking. When he had things arranged on the table, he pulled the drill toward the dental chair and sat down to polish the false teeth. He seemed not to be thinking about what he was doing, but worked steadily pumping the drill with his feet, even when he didn't need it. After eight, he stopped for a while to look at the sky through the window, and he saw two pensive buzzards who were drying themselves in the sun on the ridge pole of the house next door. He went on working with the idea that before lunch it would rain again. The shrill voice of his eleven-year-old son interrupted his concentration. Papa, what? The mayor wants to know if you'll pull his tooth. Tell him I'm not here. He was polishing a gold tooth. He held it at arm's length and examined it with his eyes half closed. His son shouted again from the little waiting room. He says you are too because he can hear you. The dentist kept examining the tooth. Only when he had put it on the table with the finished work did he say, so much the better. He operated the drill again. He took several pieces of a bridge out of a cardboard box where he kept the things he still had to do and began to polish the gold. Papa, what? He still hadn't changed his expression. He says if you don't take out his tooth, he'll shoot you. Without hurrying, with an extremely tranquil movement, he stopped pedaling the drill, pushed it away from the chair, and pulled the lower drawer of the table all the way out. There was a revolver. Okay, he said. Tell him to come and shoot me. He rolled the chair over opposite the door, his hand resting on the edge of the drawer. The mayor appeared at the door. He'd shaved the left side of his face, but the other side, swollen in pain, had a five-day-old beard. 
The dentist saw many nights of desperation in his dull eyes. He closed the drawer with his fingertips and said softly, Sit down. Good morning, said the mayor. Morning, said the dentist. While the instruments were boiling, the mayor leaned his skull on the headrest of the chair and felt better. His breath was icy. It was a poor office, an old wooden chair, the pedal drill, a glass case with ceramic bottles. Opposite the chair was a window with a shoulder-high cloth curtain. When he felt the dentist approach, the mayor braced his heels and opened his mouth. A Rulio Escobar turned his head toward the light. After inspecting the infected tooth, he closed the mayor's jaw with a cautious pressure of his fingers. It has to be without anesthesia, he said. Why? Because you have an abscess. The mayor looked him in the eye. All right, he said, and tried to smile. The dentist did not return the smile. He brought the basin of sterilized instruments to the work table and took them out of the water with a pair of cold tweezers, still without hurrying. Then he pushed the spittoon with the tip of his shoe and went to wash his hands in the wash basin. He did all this without looking at the mayor. But the mayor didn't take his eyes off him. It was a lower wisdom tooth. The dentist spread his feet and grasped the tooth with a hot forceps. The mayor seized the arms of the chair, braced his feet with all his strength, and felt an icy void in his kidneys, but didn't make a sound. The dentist moved only his wrist. Without rancor, rather with a bitter tenderness, he said, Now you'll pay for our twenty dead men. The mayor felt the crunch of bone in his jaw, and his eyes Last night I dreamed, said LVX1 calmly. Susan Calvin said nothing, but her face lined. Old with wisdom and experience seemed to undergo a microscopic twitch. Did you hear that, said Linda Rash nervously? It's as I told you. She was small, dark-haired, and young. Her right hand opened and closed over and over. Calvin nodded. She said quietly, LVX, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. There was no answer. The robot sat as though it were cast out of one piece of metal, and it would stay so until it heard its name again. Calvin said, What is your computer entry code, Dr. Rash? Or enter it yourself if that will make you more comfortable. I want to inspect the positronic brain pattern. Linda's hand fumbled for a moment at the keys. She broke the process and started again. The fine pattern appeared on the screen. Calvin said, Your permission, please, to manipulate your computer. Permission was granted with a speechless nod. Of course, what could Linda, a new and unproven robo-psychologist, do against the living legend? Slowly, Susan Calvin studied the screen, moving it across and down, then up, then suddenly throwing in a key combination so rapidly that Linda didn't see what had been done. But the pattern displayed a new portion of itself altogether, and had been enlarged back and forth she went, her gnarled fingers tripping over the keys. No change came over the old face, as though vast calculations were going through her head. She watched all the patterns shift. Linda wondered if it were impossible to analyze a pattern without at least a handheld computer. Yet the old woman simply stared. Did she have a computer implanted in her skull? Or was it her brain which for decades had done nothing but devise, study, and analyze the positronic brain pattern? Did she grasp such a pattern the way Mozart grasped the notation of a symphony? Finally, Calvin said, What is it you have done, Rash? Linda said a little abashed. I made use of fractal geometry. I gathered that, but why? It had never been done. I thought it would produce a brain pattern with added complexity, possibly closer to that of the human. Was anyone consulted? Was this all on your own? I did not consult. It was on my own. Calvin's faded eyes looked long at the young woman. You had no right. 
Rash your name, rash your nature. Who are you not to ask? I myself? I, Susan Calvin, would have discussed this. I was afraid I would be stopped. You certainly would have been. Am I her voice caught, even as she strove to hold it firm, going to be fired? Quite possibly, said Calvin. Or you might be promoted. It depends on what I think when I am through. Are you going to dismantle L? She had almost said the name, which would have reactivated the robot and been one more mistake. She could not afford another mistake. If it wasn't already too late to afford anything at all, are you going to dismantle the robot? She was suddenly aware with some shock that the old woman had an electron gun in the pocket of her smock. Dr. Calvin had come prepared for just that. We'll see, said Calvin. The robot may prove too valuable to dismantle, but how can it dream? You've made a positronic brain pattern remarkably like that of a human brain. Human brains must dream to reorganize, to get rid, periodically, of knots and snarls. Perhaps so must this robot, and for the same reason. Have you asked him what he has dreamed? No. I sent for you as soon as he said he had dreamed. I would deal with this matter no further on my own after that. Ah. A very small smile passed over Calvin's face. There are limits beyond which your folly will not carry you. I'm glad of that. In fact, I am relieved. And now let us together see what we can find out. She said sharply, Elvex. The robot's head turned toward her smoothly. Yes, Dr. Calvin. How do you know you have dreamed? It is at night. When it is dark, Dr. Calvin, said Elvex. And there is suddenly light. Although I can see no cause for the appearance of light. I see things that have no connection with what I perceive of as reality. I hear things. I react oddly. In searching my vocabulary for words to express what was happening, I came across the word dream. Studying its meaning, I finally came to the conclusion I was dreaming. How did you come to have dream in your vocabulary, I wondered. Linda said quickly, waving the robot silent. I gave him a human-style vocabulary. I thought, you really thought, said Calvin. I'm amazed. I thought he would need the verb, you know. I never dreamed that something like that. Calvin said, How often have you dreamed, Elvex? Every night, Dr. Calvin, since I have become aware of my existence. Ten nights, interposed Linda anxiously. But Elvex only told me of it this morning. Why only this morning, Elvex? It was not until this morning, Dr. Calvin, that I was convinced that I was dreaming. Till then I had thought there was a flaw in my positronic brain pattern, but I could not find one. Finally, I decided it was a dream. And what do you dream? I dream always very much the same dream, Dr. Calvin. Little details are different, but always it seems to me that I see a large panorama in which robots are working. Robots, Elvex? And human beings also? I see no human beings in the dream, Dr. Calvin. Not at first. Only robots. What are they doing, Elvex? They are working, Dr. Calvin. I see some mining in the depths of earth, and some laboring in heat and radiation. I see some factories and some undersea. Calvin turned to Linda. Elvex is only ten days old. I'm sure he has not left the testing station. How does he know of robots in such detail? Linda looked in the direction of a chair, as though she longed to sit down. But the old woman was standing, and that meant Linda had to stand also. She said faintly, It seemed to me important that he know about robotics and its place in the world. It was my thought that he would be partially adapted to play the part of overseer with his, his new brain. His fractal brain? Yes. Calvin nodded and turned back to the robot. He saw all this, undersea and underground and above ground. Space too, I imagine. I also saw robots working in space, said Elvex. It was that I saw all this, with the details forever changing. As I glanced from place to place, that made me realize 
that what I saw was not in accord with reality and led me to the conclusion finally that I was dreaming. What else did you see, Elvex? I saw that all the robots were bowed down with the toil and affliction, that all were weary of responsibility and care, and I wished them to rest. Calvin said, but the robots are not bowed down. They are not weary. They need no rest. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin. I speak of my dream. However, in my dream, it seemed to me the robots must protect their own existence. Calvin said, are you quoting the third law of robotics? I am, Dr. Calvin. But you quote it in incomplete fashion. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, Dr. Calvin, that is the third law in reality, but in my dream the law ended with the word existence. There was no mention of the first or second law. Yet both exist, Elvex. The second law, which takes precedence over the third, is a robot must obey the orders given it by human, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Because of this, robots obey orders. They do the work you see them do, and they do it readily and without trouble. They are not bowed down, they are not weary. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin, I speak of my dream. And the first law, Elvex, which is the most important of all, is a robot may not injure a human being, or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Yes, Dr. Calvin, in reality. In my dream, however, it seemed to me there was neither the first nor second law, but only the third. And the third law was a robot must protect its own existence. That was the whole of the law. In your dream, Elvex? In my dream. Calvin said, Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. And again the robot became to all appearances a single inert piece of metal. Calvin turned to Linda Rash and said, Well, what do you think, Dr. Rash? Linda's eyes were wide and she could feel her heart beating madly. She said, Dr. Calvin, I am appalled. I had no idea. It would never have occurred to me that such a thing was possible. No, said Dr. Calvin calmly, nor would it have occurred to me, not to anyone. You have created a robot capable of dreaming, and by this device you have revealed a layer of thought in robotic dreams that might have remained undetected otherwise until the danger became acute. But that's impossible, said Linda. You can't mean the Alan Austin, as nervous as a kitten, went up certain dark and creaky stairs in the neighborhood of Pell Street and peered about for a long time on the dime landing before he found the name he wanted written obscurely on one of the doors. He pushed open the door, as he had been told to do, and found himself in a tiny room which contained no furniture but a plain kitchen table, a rocking chair, and an ordinary chair. On one of the dirty buff-colored walls were a couple of shelves, containing in all perhaps a dozen bottles and jars. An old man sat in the rocking chair reading a newspaper. Alan, without a word, handed him the card he had been given. Sit down, Mr. Austin, said the old man very politely. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Is it true, asked Alan, that you have a certain mixture that has, er, quite extraordinary effects? My dear sir, replied the old man, my stock and trade is not very large. I don't deal in laxatives and teething mixtures, but such as it is, it is varied. I think nothing I sell has effect which could be precisely described as ordinary. Well, the fact is, began Alan. Here, for example, interrupted the old man, reaching for a bottle from the shelf. Here is a liquid as colorless as water, almost tasteless, quite imperceptible in coffee, wine, or any other beverage. It is also quite imperceptible to any known method of autopsy. Do you mean it is a poison? cried Alan, very much horrified. Call it a glove cleaner if you like, said the old man indifferently. 
Maybe it will clean gloves. I've never tried. One might call it a life cleaner. Lives need cleaning sometime. I want nothing of that sort, said Alan. Probably it is just as well, said the old man. Do you know the price of this? For one teaspoonful, which is sufficient, I ask five hundred dollars. Never less, not a penny less. I hope all your mixtures are not as expensive, said Alan apprehensively. Oh dear no, said the old man. It would be no good charging that sort of price for a love potion, for example. Young people who need a love potion very seldomly have five thousand dollars. Otherwise, they would not need a love potion. I am glad to hear that, said Alan. I look at it like this, said the old man. Please a customer with one article, and he will come back when he needs another. Even if it is more costly, he will save up for it if necessary. So, said Alan, you really do sell love potions? If I did not sell love potions, said the old man, reaching for another bottle, I should not have mentioned the other matter to you. It is only when one is in a position to oblige that one can afford to be so confidential. And these potions, said Alan, they are not just, er... Oh no, said the old man, their effects are permanent and extend far beyond the mere casual impulse. But they include it. Oh yes, they include it. Bountifully, insistently, everlastingly. Dear me, said Alan, attempting a look of scientific detachment. How very interesting. But consider the spiritual side, said the old man. I do indeed, said Alan. For indifference, said the old man, they substitute devotion for scorn, admiration. Give one tiny measure of this to the young lady. Its flavor is imperceptible. In orange juice super cocktails, and however gay and giddy she is, she will change altogether. She want nothing but solitude in you. I can hardly believe it, said Alan. She is so fond of parties. She will not like them any more, said the old man. She will be afraid of the pretty girls you may meet. She will actually be jealous, cried Alan in rapture. Of me, yes, she will want to be everything to you. She is already, only she doesn't care about it. She will. When she's taken this, she will care intensely. You will be her sole interest in life. Wonderful, cried Alan. She will want to know all you do, said the old man. All that has happened to you during the day, every word of it. She will want to know what you are thinking about. Why you smile suddenly. Why you are looking sad. That is love, cried Alan. Yes, said the old man. How carefully she will look after you. She will never allow you to be tired, to sit in a drought, to neglect your food. If you are an hour late, she will be terrified. She will think you are killed or that some siren has caught you. I can hardly imagine Diana like that, cried Alan, overwhelmed with joy. You will not have to use your imagination, said the old man. And by the way, since there are always sirens, if by any chance you... He had begun to read the novel a few days before. He had put it aside because of some urgent business, opened it again on his way back to the estate by train. He allowed himself a slowly growing interest in the plot and the drawing of characters. That afternoon, after writing a letter to his agent and discussing the manager of his estate, a matter of joint ownership, he returned to the book in the tranquility of his study, which looked out upon the park with its oak, sprawled in his favorite armchair with his back to the door, which would otherwise have bothered him as an irritating possibility for intrusion. He let his left hand caress once and again the green velvet upholstery and set to reading the final chapters. Without effort, his memory retained the names and images of the protagonist. The illusion took hold of him almost at once. He tasted the almost perverse pleasure of disengaging himself line by line from all that surrounded him and feeling at the same time that his head was relaxing comfortably against the green velvet of the armchair with its high back that the cigarettes were still within reach of his hand that beyond the great windows 
The afternoon air danced under the oak trees in the park, word by word, immersed in the sore dilemma of the hero and the heroine, letting himself go toward where the images came together and took on color and movement. He was witness to the final encounter in the mountain cabin. The woman arrived first, apprehensive. Now the lover came in, his face cut by the backlash of a branch. Admirably, she staunched the blood with her kisses, but he rebuffed her caresses. He had not come to repeat the ceremonies of a secret passion, protected by a world of dry leaves and furtive paths through the forest. The dagger warned itself against his chest, and underneath pounded liberty, ready to spring. A lustful, yearning dialogue raced down the pages, like a rivulet of snakes, and one felt it had all been decided from eternity. Even those caresses which writhed about the lover's body, as though wishing to keep him there, to dissuade him from it, sketched abominably the figure of that other body. It was necessary to destroy. Nothing had been forgotten. Alibis, unforeseen hazards, possible mistakes. From this hour on, each instant had its use minutely assigned. The cold-blooded double re-examination of the details was barely interrupted for a hand to caress a cheek. It was beginning to get dark. Without looking at each other now, rigidly fixed upon the task which awaited them, they separated at the cabin door. She was to follow the trail that led north, on the path leading in the opposite direction. He turned for a moment to watch her running with her hair let loose. He ran in turn, crouching among the trees and hedges, until he could distinguish in the yellowish fog of dusk the avenue of trees leading up to the house. The dogs were not supposed to bark, and they did not bark. The estate manager would not be there at this hour, and he was not. He went up the three porch steps and entered. Through the blood galloping in his ears came the woman's words. First a blue parlor, then a gallery, then a carpeted stairway at the top. Two doors. No one in the first bedroom, no one in the second. The door of the salon, and then the knife in his hand. In the old days, Horton's Bay was a lumbering town. No one who lived in it was out of sound of the big saws in the mill by the lake. Then one year, there were no more logs to make lumber. The lumber schooners came into the bay and were loaded with the cut of the mill that stood stacked in the yard. All the piles of lumber were carried away. The big mill building had all its machinery that was removable taken out and hoisted on board one of the schooners by the men who had worked in the mill. The schooner moved out of the bay toward the open lake, carrying the two great saws, the traveling carriage that hurled the logs against the revolving circular saws, and all the rollers, wheels, belts, and iron piled on a whole deep load of lumber, its open hold covered with canvas and lashed tight. The sails of the schooner filled and it moved out into the open lake, carrying with it everything that had made the mill a mill in Horton's Bay a town. The one-story bunkhouse, the eating house, the company store, the mill offices, and the big mill itself stood deserted in the acres of sawdust that covered the swampy meadow by the shore of the bay. Ten years later, there was nothing of the mill left except the broken white limestone of its foundation showing 
through the swampy second growth as Nick and Marjorie rowed along the shore. They were trolling along the edge of the channel bank where the bottom dropped off suddenly from sandy shallows to twelve feet of dark water. They were trolling on their way to set night lines for rainbow trout. There's our old ruin, Nick, Marjorie said. Nick rowing looked at the white stone and the green tree. There it is, he said. Can you remember when it was a mill, Mar Marjorie asked. I can just remember, Nick. Nick said nothing. They rowed on, out of sight of the mill, following the shoreline. Then Nick cut across the bay. They aren't striking, he said. No, Marjorie said. She was intent on the rod all the time they trolled. Even when she talked, she loved to fish. She loved to fish with Nick. Closing beside the boat, a big trout broke the surface of the water. Nick pulled hard on one oar so the boat would turn and the bait, spinning far behind, would pass where the trout was feeding. All the trout's back came up out of the water. The minnows jumped wildly. They sprinkled the surface like a handful of shot thrown in the water. Another trout broke water, feeding on the other side of the boat. They're feeding, Marjorie said, but they won't strike, Nick said. He rowed the boat around to troll past both the feeding fish and headed it for the point. Marjorie did not reel in until the boat touched the shore. They pulled the boat up the beach and Nick lifted out a pail of live perch. The perch swam in the water pail. Nick caught three of them with his hands and cut their heads off and skinned them while Marjorie chased with her hands in the bucket. Finally caught a perch, cut its head off and skinned it. Nick looked at her fish. You don't want to take that ventral fin out, he said. It'll be alright for bait, but it's better with the ventral fin in. He hooked each of the skin perch through the tail. There were two hooks attached to a leader on each rod. Then Marjorie rowed the boat out over the channel bank, holding the line in her teeth and looking toward Nick, who stood on the shore, holding the rod and letting the line run out from the reel. That's about right, he called. Should I let it drop? Marjorie called back, holding the line in her hand. Sure, let it go. Marjorie dropped the line overboard and watched the bait go down through the water. She came in with the boat and ran the second line out the same way. Each time, Nick set a heavy slab of driftwood across the butt of the rod to hold it and solid and propped it up at an angle with a small slab. He reeled in the slack line so the line ran taut out to where the bait rested on the sandy floor of the channel and set the click on the reel. Then a trout feeding on the bottom took the bait it would run with, taking line out of the reel in a rush and making the reel sling with the click on. Marjorie rode up the point a little way so she would not disturb the line. She pulled hard on the oars and the boat went up the beach. Little waves came in with it. Marjorie stepped out on the boat and Nick pulled the boat, the boat high up on the beach. What's the matter, Nick? Marjorie asked. I don't no, Nick said, getting wood for a fire. They made a fire with driftwood. Marjorie went to the boat and brought a blanket. The evening breeze blew the smoke toward the point, so Marjorie spread the blanket out between the fire and the lake. Marjorie sat on the blanket with her back to the fire and waited for Nick. He came over and sat down beside her on the blanket. In back of them there was a close second growth timber of the point and in front was the bay with the mouth of Horton's Creek. It was not quite dark. The firelight went as far as the water. They could both see the two steel rods at an angle over the dark water. The fire glinted on the reels. Marjorie unpacked the basket of supper. I don't feel like eating, said Nick. Come on and eat, Nick. Alright. They ate without talking and watched the two rods and the fire light in the water. There's going to be a moon 
alone tonight, said Nick. He looked across the bay to the hills that were beginning to sharpen against the sky. Beyond the hills, he knew the moon was coming up. I know it, Marjorie said happily. You know everything, Nick said. Oh, Nick, please cut it out. Please don't be that way. I can't help it, Nick said. You do. You know everything. That's the trouble. You know you do. Marjorie did not say anything. I've taught you everything. You know you do. I've taught you everything. You know you do. What don't you know anyway? Oh, shut up, Marjorie said. There comes the moon. They sat on the blanket without touching each other and watched the moon rise. You don't have to... It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to Earth, a species I hastened to point out customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me, and I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface, rather rapidly. Apparently no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial, yet to the characters in the book it was perfectly natural, which suggested the belonging to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials, the narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great Scott, but here the girl turned and stomped off and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? my wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing. I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more. Trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. 
eyes, arms, and maybe more. Without batting an eyelash, my knowledge of biology came in handy. At this point, obviously they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I'd really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out the passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney had lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts, yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two people when the occasion demanded without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shuddered to think what he's done with him. By this time, he took her arm, not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travel had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. I should certainly do it, said Sherlock Holmes. I started at the interruption, for my companion had been eating his breakfast, with his intention entirely centered upon the paper, which was propped up by the coffee pot. Now I looked across at him to find his eyes fastened upon me with half-amused, half-questioning expression, which he usually assumed when he felt he made an intellectual point. Do what, I asked. He smiled as he took his slipper from the mantelpiece and drew from it enough shag tobacco to fill the old clay pipe with which he inv invariably rounded off his breakfast. A most characteristic question of yours, Watson, said he. You will not, I am sure, be offended if I say that any reputation for sharpness which I may possess has been entirely gained by the admirable foil which you have made for me. Have I not heard of debutantes who have insisted upon plainness in their chaperones? There is a certain analogy. Our long companionship in the Baker Street rooms had left us on those easy terms of intimacy when much may be said without offense. And yet I acknowledge that I was nettled at his remark. I may be very obtuse, said I, but I confess that I am unable to see how you have managed to know that I was asked to help in the Edinburgh University Bazaar, precisely 
The letter has only just come to hand, and I have not spoken to you since. In spite of that, said Holmes, leaning back in his chair and putting his fingertips together, I would even venture to suggest that the object of the bazaar is to enlarge the university cricket field. I looked at him in such bewilderment that he vibrated with silent laughter. The fact is, my dear Watson, that you are an excellent subject, said he. You are never blasé. You respond instantly to any stimulus. Your mental process may be slow, but they are never obscure. And I found during breakfast that you were easier reading than the leader in the times in front of me. I should be glad to know how you arrived at your conclusion, said I. I fear that my good nature in giving explanations has seriously compromised my reputation, said Holmes, but in this case the train of reasoning is based upon such obvious fact that no credit can be claimed for it. You entered the room with a thoughtful expression, the expression of a man who was debating some point in his mind. In your hand you held a solitary letter. Last night you retired in the best of spirits, so it was clear that it was this letter in your hand which caused the change in you. This is obvious. It is all obvious when it is explained to you. I naturally asked myself what the letter could contain that might have this effect upon you. As you walked, you held the flap side of the envelope towards me, and I saw upon it the same shield-shaped device which I have observed upon your old college cricket cap. It was clear then that the request came from Edinburgh University, or, for some, or from sub, some club connected with the university. When you reached the table, you laid down the letter beside your plate, with the address uppermost, and you walked over to look at the framed photograph upon the left of the mantelpiece. It amazed me to see the accuracy with which he observed my movements. What next? I asked. I began by glancing at the address, and I could tell, even at the distance of six feet, that it was an unofficial communication. This I gathered from the use of the word doctor upon the address, to which as a bachelor of medicine, you have no legal claim. I knew that, that university officials are pedantic in their correct use of titles, and I was thus enabled to say with certainty that your letter was unofficial. When on your return to the table, you turned over your letter and allowed me to perceive that the enclosure was a printed one. The idea of a bazaar first occurred to me. I had already weighed the possibility of it being a political communication but this seemed improbable in the present stagnant conditions of politics. When you returned to the table, your face still retained its expression, and it was evident that your examination of the photograph had not changed the current of your thoughts. In that case, it must itself bear upon the subject in question. I turned my attention to the photograph, therefore, and I saw it at once, that it consisted of yourself as a member of the Edinburgh University Eleven with the pavilion and cricket field in the background. My small experience of cricket clubs has taught me that, next to churches and cavalry and signs, they are the most debt-laden things upon earth. When upon your return to the table, I saw you take out your pencil and draw lines upon the envelope. I was convinced that you were endeavoring to realize some projected improvement, which was to be brought about by a bazaar. Your face still showed some indecision, so that I was able to break in upon you with my advice that you should assist in so good an object. I could not help smiling at the extreme simplicity of his explanation. Of course it was as easy as possible, said I. My remark appeared to nettle him. I may add, said he, that the particular help which you have been asked to give 
was that you should write in their album, and that you have already made up your mind that the present incident will be the subject of your article. But how, I cried, it is as easy as possible, said he, and I leave its solution to your own ingenuity. In the meantime, he added, raising his paper, you will excuse me if I return to this very interesting art article upon the trees of Cremona and the exact reasons for the preeminence in the manufacture of violins. It is one of those small outlying problems to which I am sometimes tempted to direct my attention. I should certainly do it, said Sherlock Holmes. I started at the interruption, for my companion had been eating his breakfast with his intention entirely centered upon the paper which was propped up by the coffee pot. Now I looked across at him to find his eyes fastened upon me with half-amused, half-questioning expression, which he usually assumed when he felt he made an intellectual point. Do what, I asked. He smiled as he took his slipper from the mantelpiece and drew from it enough shag tobacco to fill the old clay pipe with which he inv invariably rounded off his breakfast. A most characteristic question of yours, Watson, said he. You will not, I am sure, be offended if I say that any reputation for sharpness which I may possess has been entirely gained by the admirable foil which you have made for me. Have I not heard of debutantes who have insisted upon plainness in their chaperones? There is a certain analogy. Our long companionship in the Baker Street rooms left us on those easy terms of intimacy when much may be said without offense and yet i acknowledge that i was nettled at his remark i may be very obtuse said i but i confess that i am unable to see how you have managed to know that i was asked to help in the edinburgh university bazaar precisely the letter has only just come to hand and i have not spoken to you since in spite of that said holmes leaning back in his chair and putting his fingertips together, I would even venture to suggest that the object of the bazaar is to enlarge the university cricket field. I looked at him in such bewilderment that he vibrated with silent laughter. The fact is, my dear Watson, that you are an excellent subject, said he. You are never blasé. You respond instantly to any stimulus. Your mental process may be slow, but they are never obscure and I found during breakfast that you were easier reading than the leader in the times in front of me. I should be glad to know how you arrived at your conclusion, said I. I fear that my good nature in giving explanations has seriously compromised my reputation, said Holmes, but in this case the train of reasoning is based upon such obvious fact that no credit can be claimed for it. You entered the room with a thoughtful expression, the expression of a man who was debating some point in his mind. In your hand you held a solitary letter. Last night you retired in the best of spirits, so it was clear that it was this letter in your hand which caused the change in you. This is obvious. It is all obvious when it is explained to you. I naturally asked myself what the letter could contain that might have this effect upon you. As you walked, you held the flap side of the envelope towards me, and I saw upon it the same shield-shaped device which I have observed upon your old college cricket cap. It was clear then that the request came from Edinburgh University, or, for some, or from sub, some club connected with the university. When you reached the table, you laid down the letter beside your plate, with the address uppermost, 
you walked over to look at the framed photograph upon the left of the mantelpiece. It amazed me to see the accuracy with which he observed my movements. What next? I asked. I began by glancing at the address, and I could tell, even at the distance of six feet, that it was an unofficial communication. This I gathered from the use of the word doctor upon the address, to which, as a bachelor of medicine, you have no legal claim. I knew that, that university officials are pedantic in their correct use of titles, and I was thus enabled to say, with certainty, that your letter was unofficial. When on your return to the table, you turned over your letter and allowed me to perceive that the enclosure was a printed one. The idea of a bazaar first occurred to me. I had already weighed the possibility of it being a political communication, but this seemed improbable in the present stagnant conditions of politics. When you returned to the table, your face still retained its expression, and it was evident that your examination of the photograph had not changed the current of your thoughts. In that case, it must itself bear upon the subject in question. I turned my attention to the photograph, therefore, and I saw it at once that it consisted of yourself as a member of the Edinburgh University Eleven, with the pavilion and cricket field in the background. My small experience of cricket clubs has taught me that, next to churches and cavalry and signs, they are the most debt-laden things upon earth. When upon your return to the table, I saw you take out your pencil and draw lines upon the envelope. I was convinced that you were endeavoring to realize some projected improvement which was to be brought about by a bazaar. Your face still showed some indecision, so that I was able to break in upon you with my advice that you should assist in so good an object. I could not help smiling at the extreme simplicity of his explanation. Of course it was as easy as possible, said I. My remark appeared to nettle him. I may add, said he, that the particular help which you have been asked to give was that you should write in their album and that you have already made up your mind that the present incident will be the subject of your article. But how, I cried, it is as easy as possible, said he, and I leave its solution to your own ingenuity. In the meantime, he added, raising his paper, you will excuse me. If I return to this very interesting art article upon the trees of Cremona, and the exact reasons for the preeminence in the manufacture of violins, it is one of those small outlying problems which I am sometimes tempted to direct my attention. The space rocket Clarissa was nine days out from Venus. The members of the crew were also out for nine days. They were hunters, fearless expeditionists, who bagged game in Venusian jungles. At the start of our story, they are busy bagging their pants not to forget their eyes. A sort of lull has fallen over the ship. Note. A lull is a time warp that frequently attacks rockets and seduces its members into a siesta. It was during this lull that Anthony Quelch sat sprawled at his typewriter, looking as baggy as a bag of unripe grapefruit. Anthony Quelch, the cosmic clamor boy with a face like turned linoleum on the third term, busy writing a book, Fascism is Communism with a Shave, for which he would receive 367 rubles, 10 pazinkas, and incarceration in a cinema showing Gone with the Wind. The boys upstairs were throwing a party in the control room. They had been throwing the same party so long, the party looked like a worn-out first edition of a trapeze artist. There is doubt in our minds as to whether they were trying to break the party up or just do the morning mopping and break the lease simultaneously. Arms, legs, and heads littered the deck. 
The boys, it seems, threw a party at the drop of a chin. Sort of a space cataclysm with rules and little regulation. Kind of an atomic convulsion in the front parlor. The neighbors never complained. The neighbors were 450 million miles away. And the boys were tighter than a catsup bottle at lunchtime. The last time the captain had looked up the hatch and called to his kitties in a gentle voice, hell, the kitties had thrown snowballs at him. The captain had vanished. Clever way they make these space bombs nowadays. A few minutes previous, the boys had been tearing up old amazings and throwing them at one another. But now they contended themselves with tearing up just the editors. Palmer was torn in half and he sat in a corner arguing with himself about rejecting a story for an hour before someone put him through an orange juice machine, killing him. Orange juice? Sorry now. And then they landed on Venus. How in heck they got back there so quick is a wonder of science. But there they were. Come on, girls, cried Quelch. Put on your shin guards. Get out there and dig ditches for good old WPA and the Rover Boys Academy, Earth Branch 27. Out into the staggering rain, they dashed. Five minutes later, they came back in, gasping, reeling. They had forgotten their corsets. The Venusians closed in like a million landlords. Charge, men, cried Quelch, running the other way. And then battle! What a fight, folks, cried Quelch. 20,000 Earthmen against two Venusians. We're outnumbered, but we'll fight. Bloosh, correction, 10,000 men fighting. 10,000 men fighting. Kerbloom, 100 men from Earth left. Boom, this is the last man speaking, folks. What a fight. I ain't had so much fun since... Help, someone just clipped my corset strings. Boom, someone just clipped me. The field was silent. The ship lay gleaming in the pink light of the dawn. It was just blooming over the mountains like a pale flower. The two Venusians stood weeping over the bodies of the earthlings like onion peelers, or two women in a bargain basement. One Venusian looked at the other Venusian, and in a high-pitched, hoarse, sad voice said, A, 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 this hit shouldn't happen to a dog, not a doity little dog. Drawn came peacefully like a beer barrel's rolling. The Fun They Had Margie even wrote about it that night in her diary. On the page headed May 17, 2155, she wrote, Today Tommy found a real book. It was a very old book. Margie's grandfather once said that when he was a little boy, his grandfather told him that there was a time when all stories were printed on paper. They turned the pages which were yellow and crankily, and it was awfully funny to read words that stood still instead of moving the way they were supposed to on a screen. And then when they turned back to the page before, it had the same words on it that it had had when they read it the first time. Gee, said Tommy, what a waste. When you're through with the book, you just throw it away, I guess. Our television screen must have had a million books on it, and it's good for plenty more. I wouldn't throw it away. Same with mine, said Margie. She was eleven and hadn't seen as many telebooks as Tommy had. He was thirteen. She said, Where did you find it? In my house, he pointed without looking, because he was busy reading. In the attic. What's it about? School. Margie was scornful. School? What's there to write about school? I hate school. Margie had always hated school, but now she hated it more than ever. The mechanical teacher had been giving her test after test in geography, 
and she had been doing worse and worse until her mother had shaken her head sorrowfully and sent for the county inspector. He was a round little man with a red face and a whole box of tools with dials and wires. He smiled at her and gave her an apple, then took the teacher apart. Margie had hoped he wouldn't know how to put it back together, but he knew how all right, and after an hour or so, there it was again, large and black and ugly with a big screen on it, which all the lessons were shown, and the questions were asked that wasn't so bad. The part she hated most was the slot where she had to put homework and test papers. She always had to write them out in a punch code. They made her learn when she was six years old, and the, man, and the mechanical teacher calculated the mark in no time. The inspector had smiled after he finished and patted her head. He said to her mother, It's not the little girl's fault, Miss Jones. I think the geography sector was geared a little too quick. Those things happen sometimes. I've slowed it up to an average ten-year level. Actually, the overall pattern of her progress is quite satisfactory. And he patted Margie's head again. Margie was disappointed. She'd been hoping they would take the teacher away altogether. They had once taken Tommy's teacher away for nearly a month because the history sector had blanked out completely. So she said to Tommy, Why would anyone write about school? Tommy looked at her with very superior eyes. Because it's not our kind of school, stupid. This is the old kind of school that they had hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Margie was hurt. Well, I don't know what kind of school they had that time ago, she said. She read the book over his shoulder for a while and then said, Anyway, they had a teacher, sure. They had a teacher. But it wasn't a regular teacher. It was a man. A man? How could a man be a teacher? Well, he just told the boys and girls things and gave them homework and asked them questions. A man isn't smart enough. Sure he is. My father knows as much as my teacher. He can't. A man can't know as much as a teacher. He knows almost as much as I, betcha. Margie wasn't prepared to dispute that. She said, I wouldn't want a strange man in my house to teach me. Tommy screamed with laughter. You don't know much, Margie. The teachers didn't live in the house. They had a special building, and all the kids went there. And all the kids learned the same thing. Sure, if they were the same age, but my mother says a teacher has to be adjusted to fit the mind of each boy and girl it teaches, and that each kid has to be taught differently. Just the same, they didn't do it that way then. If you don't like it, you don't have to read the book. I didn't say I didn't like it, Margie said quickly. She wanted to read about those funny schools. They weren't even half finished when Margie's mother called. Margie's school. Margie looked up. Not yet, Mama. Now, said Miss Jones, and it's probably time for Tommy, too. Margie said to Tommy, Can I read the book some more with you after school? The little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. 
the current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadows under the bridge. The water looked paralyzingly cold. George wondered how long a man could stay alive in it. The glassy blackness had a strange hypnotic effect on him. He leaned still farther over the railing. I wouldn't do that if I were a quiet voice beside said. George turned resentfully to a little man he had never seen before. He was stout, well past middle age, and his round cheeks pink in the winter air, as though they had just been shaved. Wouldn't do what, George asked sullenly. What you were thinking of doing. How do you know what I was thinking? Oh, we make it our business to know a lot of the stranger said easily. George wondered what the man's business was. He was a most unremarkable little person, the sort you would pass in a crowd and never notice, unless you saw his bright blue eyes, that is. You couldn't forget them, for they were the kindest, sharpest eyes you ever saw. Nothing else about him was noteworthy. He wore a moth-eaten old fur cap and a shabby overcoat that was stretched tightly across his paunchy belly. He was carrying a small black satchel. It wasn't a doctor's bag, too large for that, and not the right shape. It was a salesman's sample kit. George decided distastefully that the fellow was probably some sort of peddler, the kind who would go around poking his sharp little nose into other people's affairs. Looks like snow, doesn't it, the stranger said, glancing up appraisingly at the overcast sky. It'll be nice to have a white Christmas. They're getting scarce these days. So are a lot of things. He turned to face George squarely. You all right now? Of course I'm all right. What made you think I was? George fell silent. Before the stranger's quiet gaze, the little man shook his head. You know you shouldn't think of such things. And on Christmas Eve of all time, you gotta consider Mary. And your mother too. George opened his mouth to ask how the stranger could know his wife's name. But the fellow anticipated him. Don't ask me how I know such things. It's my business to know. That's why I came along this way tonight. Luckily I did too. He glanced down at the dark water and shuddered. Well if you know so much about me, George said, give me just one good reason why I should be alive. The little man made a queer chuckling sound. Come, come, it can't be that bad. You've got your job at the bank, and Mary, and the kids. You're healthy, and young, and, and sick of everything, George cried. I'm stuck here in this mud hole for life, the same dull work day after day. Other men are leading exciting lives, but I, well, I'm just a small town bank clerk that even the army didn't want. I never did anything really useful or interesting, and it looks as if I never will. I might as just as well be dead. I might better be dead. Sometimes I wish I were. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. The little man stood looking at him in the growing darkness. What was that you said? He asked softly. I said I wish I'd never been born, George repeated firmly. And I mean it, too. The stranger's pink cheeks glowed with excitement. Why, that's wonderful. You've solved everything. I was afraid you were going to give me some trouble, but now you've got the solution yourself. You'd wish you'd never been born? All right, okay. You haven't. What do you mean, George growled? You haven't been born, just that. No one here knows you? You have no responsibilities, no job, no wife, no children? Why, you haven't even a mother. 
You couldn't have, of course. All of your troubles are over. Your wish has been granted officially. Nuts, George snorted and turned away. The stranger ran after him and caught him by the arm. You'd better take this with you, he said, holding out his satchel. It'll open a lot of doors that might otherwise be slammed in your face. What doors and whose face, George scoffed. I know everybody in this town. And besides, I'd like to see anybody slam a door in my face. Yes, I know, the little man said patiently. But take this anyway. It can't do any harm, and it may help. He opened the satchel and displayed a number of brushes. You'd be surprised how useful these brushes can be as introduction, especially the free ones. These, I mean. He hauled out a plain little hairbrush. I'll show you how to use it. He thrust the satchel into George's reluctant hand and began. When the lady of the house comes to the door, you give her this and then talk fast. Say, good evening, madam. I'm from the World Cleaning Company and I want to present with you this handsome and useful brush. Absolutely free. No obligation to purchase anything at all. After that, of course, it's a cinch. Now you try. He forced the brush into George's hand. George promptly dropped the brush into the satchel and fumbled with the catch, finally closing with an angry snap. Here, he said, and stopped abruptly, for there was no one in sight. The little stranger must have slipped away in the bushes, growing along the river bank, George thought. He certainly wasn't going to play hide-and-seek with them. It was nearly dark and getting colder every minute. He shivered and turned up his coat collar. The street lights had been turned on, and Christmas candles in the windows glowed soft. The little town looked remarkably cheerful. After all, the place you grew up in was the one spot on earth where you could really feel at home. George felt a sudden burst of affection, even for the crotchety old Hank Biddle, whose house he was past. He remembered the quarrel he had had when his car had scraped a piece of bark out of Hank's big maple tree. George looked up at the vast spread of leafless branches towering over him in the darkness. The tree must have been growing there since Indian time. He felt a sudden twinge of guilt for the damage he had done. He had never stopped to inspect the wound, for he was ordinarily afraid to have Hank catch him even looking at the tree. Now he stepped out boldly into the roadway to examine the huge trunk. Hank must have repaired the scar or painted it over, for there was no sign of it. George struck a match and bent down to look more close. He straightened up with an odd sinking feeling in his stomach. There wasn't any scar. The bark was smooth and undamaged. He remembered what the little man at the bridge had said. It was all nonsense, of course, but the non-existent scar bothered. When he reached the bank, he saw there was something wrong. The building was dark and he knew he had turned the vault light on. He noticed too that someone had left the window shades up. He ran around to the front and there was a battered old sign fastened to the door. George could just make out the word, for rent or sale. Apply, James Silver Realist. Perhaps it was some of the boy's tricks, he thought wildly. Then he saw a pile of ancient leaves and tattered newspapers in the bank's ordinarily immaculate doorway. And the windows looked as though they hadn't been washed in years. A light was still burning across the street in Jim Silva's office. George dashed over to him and tore the door open. Jim looked up at him from his ledger book in surprise. What can I do for you, young man? He said in a polite voice. He reserved for potential customers. The bank, George said breathlessly. What's the matter with it? The old bank building, Jim Silva turned around and looked out the window. Nothing that I can see of. 
wouldn't like to rent or buy it, would you? You mean it's out of business? Ah, for a good ten years. Went bust. Strange around these parts, ain't you? George sagged against the wall. I was here some time ago, he said weakly. The bank was all right then. I even knew some of the people who worked there. Didn't you know a feller named Marty Jenkins? Did you? Marty Jenkins? Why, he... George was about to say that Marty had never worked in the bank. Couldn't have, in fact. When they had both left school, they had applied for a job, and George had gotten it. But now, of course, things were different. You would have to be careful. No, I didn't know him, he said slowly. Not really that. Then maybe you heard how he skipped out with $50,000. That's why the bank went broke. Pretty near ruined everybody around here. Silva was looking at him sharply. I was hoping for a minute maybe you'd know where he is. I lost plenty in that crash myself. We'd like to get our hands on Marty Jenkins. Didn't he have a brother? Seems to me he had a brother named Arthur. Art? Oh, sure. But he's all right. He didn't know where his brother went. It had a terrible effect on him, too. Took to the drink he did. It's too bad. And hard on his wife. He married a nice girl. George felt the sinking feeling in his stomach. Who did he marry? He demanded hoarsely. Both he and Art had courted Mary. Girl named Mary Thatcher, Silva said cheerfully. She lives up on the hill just this side of the church. Hey, where are you going? But George had bolted out of the office. He ran past the empty bank building and turned up the hill. For a moment, he thought he was going straight to Mary. The house next to the church had been given them by her father as a wedding present. Naturally, Art Jenkins would have gotten it if he had married Mary. George wondered whether they had any children. Then he knew he couldn't face them. Not yet, any. Anyway. He decided to visit his parents and find out more about them. There were candles burning in the window of the little weather-beaten house beside and a Christmas wreath was hanging on the glass panel on the front door. George raised the gate latch with a loud click. A dark shape on the porch jumped up and began to growl. Then it hurled itself down the steps, barking ferociously. Brownie, you old fool, stop that. Don't you know me? But the dog advanced menacingly and drove him back behind the gate. The porch light snapped on and George's father stepped outside to call the dog off. The barking subsided to a low, angry growl. His father held the dog by the collar while George cautiously walked past. He could see that his father did not know him. Is the lady of the house in, he asked. His father waved, waved toward the door. Go on in, he said cordially. I'll chain this dog up. She can be mean with strangers. His mother, who was waiting in the hallway, obviously did not recognize. George opened his sample, grabbed the first brush that came to hand. Good evening, ma'am, he said politely. I'm from the World Cleaning Company. We're giving out a free sample brush. I thought you might like to have one. No obligation, no obligation at all. His, his voice faltered. His mother smiled at his awkwardness. I suppose you'll want to sell me something. I'm not really sure I need any. No, I'm not selling anything, he assured her. The regular salesman will be around in a few days. This is just, well, just a Christmas present from the company. How nice. You people never gave away such good brushes before. This is a special offer, he said. His father entered the hall and closed the door. Won't you come in for a while and sit down with us? His mother said. You must be tired walking somewhere. Thank you, ma'am. I don't mind if I do. He entered the little parlor and put his bag down. The room looked different, although he could not figure out why. I used to know this town pretty well, he used to make comments. He knew of some of the townspeople. I remembered a girl named Mary Thatcher. She married Art Jenkins there. You must know of the course, his mother said. We know Mary well. Then he 
children? He asked casually. Two, a boy and a girl. George sighed audibly. My, you must be tired as me. Perhaps I can get you a cup of tea. No, ma'am, don't bother, he said. I'll be having supper. So he looked around the little parlor trying to find out why it looked different. Over the mantelpiece hung a framed photo, which had been taken on his kid brother Harry's 16th birthday. He remembered how they had gone to Potter's studio to photograph together. There was something queer about the picture. It showed only one figure. Harry, that's your son, he asked. His mother's face clouded. She nodded, but said nothing. I think I met him, too. George said hesitantly. His name's Harry, isn't it? His mother turned away, making a strange choking noise in her throat. Her husband put his arm clumsily around her shoulder. His voice, which was always mild and gentle, suddenly became harsh. You couldn't have met him, he said. He's been dead a long while. He was drowned the day that picture was taken. George's mind flew back to the long-ago August afternoon when he and Harry had visited Potter's studio. On their way home, they had gone swimming. Harry had been seized with a cramp. He remembered he had pulled him out of the water and had thought nothing of it. But suppose he hadn't been there. I'm sorry, he said miserably. I guess I'd better go. I hope you like the brush, and I wish you both a very Merry Christmas. There, he had put his foot in it again, wishing them a Merry Christmas when they were thinking dead son. Brownie tugged fiercely at her chain as George went down the porch steps and accompanied his departure with a hostile, rolling growl. He wanted desperately now to see Mary. He wasn't sure he could stand not being recognized by her, but he had to see her. The lights were on in the church, and the choir was making last-minute preparations preparations for Christmas vespers. The organ had been practicing holy night evening after evening until George had become thoroughly sick of it. But now the music almost tore his heart out. He stumbled blindly up the path to his own house. The lawn was untidy and the flower bushes he had kept carefully trimmed were neglected and badly sprouted. Aunt Jenkins could hardly be expected to care for such. When he knocked at the door, there was a long silence, followed by the shout of a child. Then Mary came to the door. At the sight of her, George's voice almost failed him. Merry Christmas, he managed to say at last. His hand shook as he tried to open the satchel. When George entered the living room, unhappy as he was, he could not help noticing the secret grin that the two high-priced blue sofa they had quarreled over was there. Evidently, Mary had gone through the same thing with Art Jenkins and had won the argument with him, too. George got his satchel open. One of the brushes had a bright blue handle and very colored bristles. It was obviously a brush not intended to be given away, but George didn't care. He handed it to Mary. This would be fine for your sofa, he said. My, that's a pretty brush. You're giving it away free? He nodded solemnly. Special introductory offer. One way for the company to keep excess profit. Share them with its friends. She stroked the sofa gently with the brush, smoothing out the velvet nap. It is a nice brush. Thank you, I. There was a sudden scream from the kitchen, and two small children rushed in. A little homely-faced girl flung herself into her mother's arms, sobbing loudly as a boy of seven came running after her, snapping a toy pistol at her. Mommy, she won't die, he yelled. I shot her a hundred times. She won't die. He looked just like Art Jenkins, George thought. He acts like him, too. The boy suddenly turns his attention to him. Who are you? He demanded belligerently. He pointed his pistol at George and pulled the trigger. You're dead, he cried. You're dead. Why don't you fall down and die? There was a heavy step on the porch. The boy looked frightened and backed away. George saw Mary glance apprehensively at the door. Art Jenkins came in. He stood for a moment in the doorway, clinging to the knob for support. His eyes were glazed and his face was very red. Who's this? he demanded thickly. He's a brush salesman, said Mary. 
He gave me this brush. Brush sales, sneered. Tell him to get out of here. We don't want no brush. Art hiccuped violently and lurched across the room sofa where he sat down suddenly. And we don't want no brush sales either. George looked despairingly at, at Mary. Her eyes were begging him to go. Art had lifted his feet up on the sofa and was sprawling out, muttering unkind things about brush sales. George went to the door, followed by Art's son, who kept snapping the pistol at him and saying, You're dead. You're dead. Perhaps the boy was right, she thought when he reached the porch. Maybe he was dead, or maybe this was all a bad dream from which he might eventually awake. He wanted to find the little man on the bridge again and try to persuade him to cancel the whole deal. He hurried down the hill and broke into a run. When he neared the river, George was relieved to see the little stranger standing on the bridge. I've had enough, he gasped. Get me out of this. You gotta get me out of this. Get me out of this. You got me into this? The stranger raised his eyebrow. I got you. I like that. You were granted your wish. You got everything you asked for. You're the freest man on earth. You have no ties. You can go anywhere. Do anything. What more can you possibly all were crowding around M. Bermutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. M. Bermutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame. It is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding, preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Hacio, a little white city on the edge of a bay, which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find they're the most beautiful causes for revenge, of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. Abominable stratagems, murders, becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered, my head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa 
at the end of the bay for several years he had brought with him a french servant who he had engaged on the way at marcella's soon this peculiar person living alone only going out to hunt and fish aroused a widespread interest he never spoke to anyone never went to the town and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle legends were built up around him it was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned in my judicial position i thought it necessary to get some information about this man but it was impossible to learn anything he called himself sir john rowell i therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as i could but i could see nothing suspicious about his actions however as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread i decided to try to see this stranger myself and i began to hunt reg regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds for a long time i watched without finding an opportunity at last it came to me in the shape of a partridge which i shot and killed right in front of the englishman my dog fetched it for me but taking the bird i went at once to sir john rowell and begging his pardon asked him to accept it he was a big man with red hair and beard very tall very broad kind of calm and polite hercules he had nothing of the so-called british stiffness and in a broad english accent he thanked me warmly for my attention at the end of a month we had five or six conversations one night at last as i was passing before his door i saw him in the garden seated astride a chair smoking his pipe i bowed and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer i needed no urging he received me with the most punticulous english courtesy sang the praises of france and of corsica and declared that he was quite in love with this country then with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest i asked him a few questions about his life and his plans he answered without embarrassment telling me that he had traveled a great deal in africa in the indies in america he added laughing i had many adventures then i turned the conversation on hunting and he gave me the most curious detail on hunting the hippopotamus the tiger the elephant and even the gorilla i said are all these animals dangerous he smiled oh no man is the worst and he laughed a good broad laugh a wholesome laugh of a contented englishman i have also frequently been man hunting then he began to talk about weapons and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns his parlor was draped in black black silk embroidered in gold big yellow flowers as, as brilliant as fire were worked on the dark material he said it is a japanese material but in the middle of the widest panel a strange thing attracted my attention a black object stood out against a square of red velvet i went up to it it was a hand a human hand not the clean white hand of a skeleton but a dried black hand with yellow nails the muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm around the wrist an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash i asked what is that the englishman answered quietly this is my best enemy it comes from america too the bones were severed by a sword and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week i touched these human remains which must have belonged to a giant the uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places his hand was terrible to see it made one think of some savage vengeance i said this man must have been very strong the englishman answered quietly yes but i was stronger than he i put on the chain to hold him i thought that he was joking i said the chain is useless now the hand won't run away 
Sir John Rowell answered seriously. It always wants to go away. The chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subject and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls, then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made his strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut, or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, which had disappeared. No one knows how. At the very hour of the crime, he would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the window that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated that I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials throughout the whole island. A minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day, the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there. We had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The woman deeply stirred. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor explanation. We will be un unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. One of the women murdered. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? Most terribly cold it was. It snowed. 
It was nearly quite dark, the last evening of the year. In this cold and darkness, there went along the street a poor little girl, bareheaded and with naked feet. When she left home, she had slippers on. It is true, but what was the good of that? They were very large slippers, which her mother had hitherto worn. So large were they, and the poor little thing lost them as she scuffled away across the street because of two carriages that rolled by dreadfully fast. One slipper was nowhere to be found. The other had been laid hold of by an urchin, and off he ran with it. He thought it would do capitally for a cradle when he some day or other should have children himself. So the little maiden walked on with her tiny naked feet that were quite red and blue from cold. She carried a quantity of matches and an old apron, and she held a bundle of them in her hand. Nobody had bought anything of her the whole live-long day. No one had given her a single farthing. She crept along, trembling with cold and hunger, a very picture of sorrow, the poor little thing. The flakes of snow covered her long, fair hair, which fell in beautiful curls around her neck. But of that, of course, she never once now thought. From all the windows, the candles were gleaming, and it smelt so deliciously of roast goose, for you know it was New Year's Eve. Yes, of that, she thought. In a corner formed by two houses, of which one advanced more than the other, she seated herself down and cowered together. Her little feet she had drawn close up to her, but she grew colder and colder, and to go home she did not venture, for she had not sold any matches, and could not bring a farthing of money. From her father she would certainly get blows, and at home it was too cold, for above her she had only the roof, through which the wind whistled even though the largest cracks were stopped up with straw and rags. Her little hands were almost numbed with cold. Oh, a match might afford her a world of comfort. She only dared take a single out of her bundle, draw it against the wall, and warm her fingers by it. She drew one out. How it blazed, how it burnt. It was a warm, bright flame like a candle, as she held her hands over it. It was a wonderful light. It seemed really to the little maiden as though she were sitting before a large iron stove with burnished brass feet and a brass ornament at top. The fire burned with such blessed influence it warmed so delightfully. The little girl had already stretched out her feet to warm them too, but the small flame went out. The stove vanished. She had only the remains of the burnt-out match in her hand. She rubbed another against the wall. It burned brightly, and where the light fell on the wall, there the wall became transparent like a veil, so that she could see into the room. On the table was spread a snow-white tablecloth. Upon it was a splendid porcelain service, and the roast goose was steaming, famously with its stuffing of apple and dried plums. And what was still more capital to behold was the goose hopped down from the dish, reeled about on the floor with the knife and fork in its breast, till it came up to the poor little girl. When the match went out, and nothing but the thick, cold, damp wall was left behind, she lighted another match. Now there she was, sitting under the most magnificent Christmas tree. It was still larger and more decorated than the one she had seen to the glass door in the rich merchant's house. Thousands of lights were burning on the green branches, and galley-colored pictures, such as she had seen in the shop windows, looked down upon her. The little maiden stretched out her hands toward them. When the match went out, the lights on the Christmas tree rose higher and higher. She saw them now as stars in heaven. One fell down and formed a long trail of fire. Someone is just dead, said the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only person who had loved her, and who was now no more, had told her that when a star falls, a soul ascends to heaven. She drew another match against the wall. It was again light, and in the luster there stood the old grandmother, so bright and radiant, so mild, and with such an expression of love. Grandmother, cried the little one, oh, take me with you. 
You go away when the match burns out. You vanish like the warm stove, like, like the delicious roast goose, and like the magnificent Christmas tree. And she rubbed the whole bundle of matches quickly against the wall, for she wanted to be quite sure of keeping her grandmother near her. And the matches gave such a brilliant light that it was brighter than at noonday. Never formally had the grandmother been so beautiful and so tall. She took the little maiden on her arm, and both flew in brightness, and in joy so high, so very high. And then above was neither cold, nor hunger, nor anxiety. They were with God. But in the corner, at the cold hour of dawn, sat the poor girl, with rosy cheeks, with a smiling mouth, leaning against the wall, frozen to death, on the last evening of the old year. Stiff and stark sat the girl there with her matches, of which one bundle had been burnt. She wanted to warm herself, people said. No one had the slightest suspicion of what beautiful things she had seen. No one even dreamed of the splendor in which, with her grandmother, she had entered the, the joys of a new year. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around ten o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 20th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer. The feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimand. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in their dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women wearing faded house dresses and sweaters came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing back up to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly back. Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his eldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, a little late today, folks. The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, 
leaving a space between themselves and the stool. When Mr. Summers said, some of you fellows want to give me a hand, there was a hesitation before two men. Mr. Martin and his eldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool, while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some piece of the boxes that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color, and in some places, faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his eldest son Baxter held the black box securely on the stool, until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population had more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year, the box was, was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set, it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of, of the lottery used, used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time, until now it was felt unnecessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this, in his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box. He seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Miss Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Miss Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Miss Hutchinson went on. Then I looked out the window and the kids were gone. 
Then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron and Miss Delacroix said, You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there. Miss Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the woods and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Miss Delacroix on the, on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humouredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Miss Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Miss Hutchinson said, grinning, Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink, now would you, Joe? And soft laughter rang through the crowd, and the people stirred back into position after Miss Hutchinson's arrival. Well now, Mr. Summers said soberly, Guess we better get started. Get this over with so as we can go back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar. Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Miss, while Miss Dunbar answered. Horses not but sixteen yet, Miss Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Senior Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding, then he asked. Watson boy drawing this year. A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow lack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, Guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. Already, he called. Now I'll read the names, heads of the families first, and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it, until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. And then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams, a man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said. And Mr. Adams said hi. Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorously and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said. Anderson. Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Miss Delacroix said to Miss Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through the last one, only last week. Time sure goes fast, Miss Graves said. Clark, Delacroix. There goes my old man, Miss Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said. And Miss Dunbar went steadily to the box. While one of the women said, go on, Janie. And another said, there she goes. We're next, Miss Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Miss Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Miss Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert, Hutchinson, get up there, Bill, Miss Hutchinson said. 
and the people near her laughed. Jones, they do say, Mr. Adams said to the old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to live in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while, used to be a saying about lottery in June. Corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chicken weed and, cor and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Miss Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdeck. Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Miss Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said, as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summer, holding a slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows, for a minute, no one moved. And then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take a paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Miss Delacroix called. And Mr. Graves said all of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said. I was done pretty fast. Now we've got to be a hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson's family. You got any other households in the Hutchinson's? There's Don and Ava, Mr. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family, that's only fair, and I've got no other family except the kids, and as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation, and as far as drawing for a household is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr., and Nancy, and little Dave, and Tessie, and me. All right then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Miss, Miss Hutchinson said, as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't... I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. 
I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancy it was down near the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gib made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter, Grave kind eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls at various scenes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long, magic fingers on the glass case. And so, with the start, we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimate, he asked, mechanical, domestic. Anything amusing, said I. Mm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gibbs stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object, and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck, and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely. 
then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind, one from the, my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather secret even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent, urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. Always for that sort of child. And he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions. A ruthless little egotist, pawing at the enchanted pain. It's no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved, with my natural helpfulness, doorward, and, and presently the spoilt, spoilt child was carried off howling. How do you manage that, I said, breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself toward Gip, before you came in that you would like to buy you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs, and behold his mouth was a string box, from which he drew an unending thread which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me, swallowed the ball of string, and then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast, and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of unex he was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. 
I fancy into a cardboard box behind the paper mache tiger. Tut tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird, and, as I live, nesting. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way, taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out, politely of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir, not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may... None of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors, whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat, I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me. And there were our distortions in the magic mirrors, looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note. I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lollop to lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do Gip a magic and his eye had followed it as it squeezed through a door I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then the store opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, fle his flexible hands together, and that is the best. Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt him, <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail, the little creature bit and fought, and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana, India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty biting bit of petty biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the Red Demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? 
None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever. Astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip. Do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven and sixpence according to size. These panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights, errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. It got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy, that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, but really good fake stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on the... Pre on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place that showed that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopmen showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself have a very quick ear. It was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out, and there was, dear, there was the dear little chap, nodding with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did, not as, I did not attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey, presto, of the boy. It was distracted by other things, but I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew, and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. 
I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know he was leaning against a pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a flyfisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. Hide and seek, Dada cried. Gip, you're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off! I cried. This instant, you'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word and held the big the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of. Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women. And he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months. But what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India, and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own. And we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays. 
but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature, and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A Truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why well, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone? And standing all day long is one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him, and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night, he strolled into the Palant Club, about eleven o'clock, and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. 
the old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you, who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home, but of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried Huey, good heavens! I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affaire c'est l'argent de sa I think you might have told me, to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eyes. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months. But what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. 
The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots, were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A Truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why well, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone, and standing all day long as one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. 
The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him, and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palin Club about eleven o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried Huey, good heavens. I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affair, sis, the argent dissateur. I think you might have told me, to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, The New Food by Stephen Leacock. I see from the current columns of the Daily Press that Professor Plum of the University of Chicago has just invented a highly concentrated form of food. All the essential nutritive elements are put together in the form of pellets, each of which contains from one to a hundred times as much nourishment as an ounce of ordinary article of diet. These pellets, diluted with water, 
will form all that is necessary to support life. The professor looks forward, confidently, to revolutionizing the present food system. Now this kind of thing may be all very well in its way, but it is going to have its drawbacks as well. In the bright future anticipated by Professor Plum, we can easily imagine such incidents as the following. A smiling family were gathered round the hospitable board. The table was plenteously laid with a soup plate in front of each beaming child, a bucket of hot water before the radiant mother, and at the head of the board the Christmas dinner of the happy home, warmly covered by a thimble and resting on a poker chip. The expectant whispers of the little ones were hushed as the father, rising from his chair, lifted the thimble disclosed a small pile of concentrated nourishment on the chip before him christmas turkey cranberry sauce plum pudding mince pie it was all there all jammed into that little pill only waiting to expand then the father with deep reverence and a devout eye alternating between the pill and heaven lifted his voice in benediction at this moment there was an agonized cry from the mother oh henry quick baby has snatched the pill it was too true Dear little Gustavus Adolphus, the golden-haired baby boy, he'd grabbed the whole Christmas dinner off the poker chip and bolted it. 350 pounds of concentrated nourishment. An old man with steel-rimmed spectacles and very dusty clothes sat by the side of the road. There was a pontoon bridge across the river and carts, trucks, and men, women and children were crossing it. The mule-drawn carts staggered up the steep bank from the bridge, with soldiers helping push against the spokes of the wheels. The trucks ground up and away, heading out of it all, and the peasants plodded along in ankle-deep dust, but the old man sat there without moving. He was too tired to go any farther. It was my business to cross the bridge, explore the bridgehead beyond, and find out to what point the enemy had advanced. I did this and returned over the bridge. There were not so many carts now and very few people on foot, but the old man was still there. Where do you come from, I asked. From San Carlos, he said and smiled. That was his native town and so it gave him pleasure to mention it. And he smiled. I was taking care of animals, he explained. Oh, I said, not quite understanding. Yes, he said. I stayed, you see, taking care of animals. I was the last one to leave the town of San Carlos. He did not look like a shepherd nor a herdsman, and I looked at his black dusty clothes and his gray dusty face and his steel room spectacles and said what animals were they? Various animals, he said, and shook his head. I had to leave them. I was watching the bridge in the African-looking country of the Ebro Delta and wondering how long now it would be before we would see the enemy, and listening all the while for the first noises that would signal that ever-mysterious event called contact. And the old man still sat there. What animals were they, I asked. There were three animals altogether, he explained. There were two goats and a cat, and then there were four pairs of pigeons. And you had to leave them, I asked. Yes, because of the artillery. The captain told me to go because of the artillery. And you have no family, I asked, watching the far end of the bridge where a few last carts were hurrying down the slope of the bank. No, he said, only the animals. I stated, the cat of course will be alright. A cat can look out for itself, but I cannot think what will become of the others. What politics have you, I asked. I'm without politics, he said. I'm 76 years old. I've come 12 kilometers now, and I think now I can go no farther. 
This is not a good place to stop, I said. If you can make it, there are trucks up the road where it forks to Tortosa. I will wait a while, he said, and then I will go. Where do the trucks go? Towards Barcelona, I told him. I know no one in that direction, he said, but thank you very much. Thank you again, very much. He looked at me very blankly and tiredly, then said, having to share his worries with someone, the cat will be alright, I am sure. There is no need to be unquiet about the cat, but the others. Now what do you think about the others? Why, they'll probably come through it alright. You think so? Why not, I said, watching the far bank where now there were no carts. But what will they do under the artillery? When I was told to leave because of the artillery. Did you leave the dove cage unlocked, I asked? Yes. Then they'll fly. Yes, certainly they'll fly, but the others. It's better not to think about the others, he said. If you are rested, I would go. I urged, get up and try to walk now. Thank you, he said, and got to his feet, swayed from side to side, and then sat back downwards in the dust. I was taking care of animals, he said dully, but no longer to me. I was only taking care of my animals. There was nothing to do about him. It was Easter Sunday, and the fascists were advancing toward the Ebro. It was a gray, overcast day with a low ceiling, so their planes were not up. That and the fact that cats know how to look after themselves was all the good luck the old man would ever have. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Ntel, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttel endeavored to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment, without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the, the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Miss Stapleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many people around here? asked the niece, when she judged they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller, who was wondering whether Miss Sapleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy, asked Frampton. Somehow in, his, in this restful country spot, tragedies seem out of place. You may wonder why we keep the window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened on the lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton. But has the window got anything to do with this tragedy? Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back in crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground. They were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog that had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt, 
always thinks that they will come back someday. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening, till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing Birdie Why Do You Bound, as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late and making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you do not mind the open window, said Miss Stapleton briskly. My husbands and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpet. So like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerily about, about the shooting and scarcity of birds, and the prospect for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk onto a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window on the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement, and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, who labored on the, under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and, ch and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailment and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Miss Stapleton in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea. And don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes, in a chill shock of nameless fear. Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulder. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk. I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nottel, said Miss Stapleton. Could only talk about his illness and dashed off without a word or goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the, on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance, at short notice, was her specialty. The long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. 
like dogs barking on lone farms republicans and free staters were waging civil war on a rooftop near o'connell bridge a republican sniper lay watching beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses his face was the face of a student thin and ascetic but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic they were deep and thoughtful the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death he was eating a sandwich hungrily he had eaten nothing since morning he had been too excited to eat he finished the sandwich and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket he took a short draught then he returned the flask to his pocket he paused for a moment considering whether he should risk a smoke it was dangerous the flash might be seen in the darkness and there were enemies watching he decided to take the risk placing a cigarette between his lips he struck a match inhaled the smoke and hurriedly put out the light almost immediately a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof the sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette then he swore softly and crawled away to the left cautiously he raised himself and peered over the parapet there was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head he dropped immediately he had seen the flash it came from the opposite side of the street he rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet there was nothing to be seen just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky his enemy was under cover just then an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street it stopped on the opposite side of the street fifty yards ahead the sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor his heart beat faster it was an enemy car he wanted to fire but he knew it was useless his bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster then round the corner of a side street came an old woman her head covered by a tattered shawl she began to talk to the man in the turret of the car she was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay an informer the turret opened a man's head and shoulders appeared looking toward the sniper the sniper raised his rifle and fired the head fell heavily on the turret wall the woman darted toward the side street the sniper fired again the woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter suddenly from the opposite roof a shot rang out and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse the rifle clattered to the roof the sniper thought the noise would wake the dead he stooped to pick the rifle up he couldn't lift it his forearm was dead i'm hit he muttered dropping flat onto the roof he crawled back to the parapet with his left hand he felt the injured right forearm the blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat there was no pain just a deadened sensation as if the arm had been cut off quickly he drew his knife from his pocket opened it on the breastwork of the parapet and ripped open the sleeve there was a small hole where the bullet had entered on the other side there was no hole the bullet had lodged in the bone he must have fractured it he bent the arm below the wound the arm bent back easily he ground his teeth to overcome the pain then taking out his fuel dressing he ripped open the packet with his knife he broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound a paroxysm of pain swept through him he placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it he tied the ends with his teeth then he lay still against the parapet and closing his eyes he made an effort of will to overcome the pain in the street beneath all was still the armored car had retired speedily over the bridge with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret the woman's corpse lay still in the gutter the sniper lay still for a long time nursing his wounded arm and planning escape morning must not find him wounded on the roof the enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape he must kill that enemy and he could not use his rifle 
He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately, there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the cap and rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We the long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness. From the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light, as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and Free Staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He had been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught, then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and hurriedly put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear, and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, fifty yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. 
His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the captain rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We
I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine or execute me if you must. Have a victim to appropriate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion. If there be anywhere so blessed a thing, it is true that I have for five years been his close friend and a partial share of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward the big cypress swamp at half-past eleven on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instruments, I will even affirm. For these things all played a part in the single hideous scene remains burned in my shaken recollection but of what followed and of the reason i was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp next morning i must insist that i know nothing save what i have told you over and over again you say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the setting of that frightful episode i reply that i know nothing beyond what i saw vision or nightmare it may have been vision or nightmare i fervently hope it was yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men and why harley warren did not return he or his shade or some nameless thing i cannot describe alone can tell as i have said before the weird studies of harley warren were well known to me and to some extent shared by me of his vast collection of strange rare books on forbidden subjects I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am master, but there are a few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book, which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket, out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension. It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, before they were terrible studies which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren almost dominated me, and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect these known horrors are beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable character which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half-past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heaven. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, 
and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creature to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapor that seemed to emanate from an unheard-of catacomb, and by its feeble, wavering beam, I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slab, urn, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre, and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed known to us, and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulchre, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest the stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discord, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read, and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me. But the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I've enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear, in my memory, those coolly spoken words. And I can still remember my, my remonstrance. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into these sepulchral depths. Yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time, he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent. A threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All of this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. 
After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instrument. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone, close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within the indescribable ossuary. For a moment, I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and I heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands, whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentient, amorphous shadow seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by the pallid peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend, in a tense voice, apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from the uncanny vaults, in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I had heard before from Harley Warren. He who had so calmly left me a little while previously, now called from below in a shaky whisper, more pretentious than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer, speechless. I could only wait. Then came the frenzied tone again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to speak to Warren. What is it? What is it? Once more came the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, and now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back the slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say, and don't ask me to explain. I heard. It was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows, below me some peril, beyond the radius of the human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause a piteous cry from Morn. Beat it for God's sake. Put back the slab and beat it, Carter. Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculty. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren, brace up. Someone else should be telling this story. Someone who understands the funny kind of football they play down in South America. Back in Moscow, Idaho, we grab the ball and run with it. In the small but prosperous republic, which I'll call Perivia, they kick it around with their feet. And that is nothing to what they do to the umpire. One of the first things I learned when I got to Perivia, after various distressing adventures, 
in the less democratic parts of South America was the last year's match had been lost owing to the knavish dishonesty of the referee. He had, it seemed, penalized most of the players on the team, disallowing a goal, and generally made sure that the best side wouldn't win. This diatribe made me quite homesick, but remembering where I was, I merely commented, You should have paid him more money. We did, was the bitter reply, but the Panagorans got at him later. Too bad, I answered. It's hard nowadays to find an honest man who stays bought, the customs inspector, who'd just taken my last hundred dollar bill, had the grace to blush beneath his stubble as he waved me across the border. The next few weeks were tough, but presently I was in what I prefer to call the agricultural machinery business. The last thing I had time to bother about was football. I knew that my expensive imports were going to be used at any moment and wanted to make sure that this time my profit went with me when I left the country. Even so, I could hardly ignore the excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. Even so, I could hardly ignore excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. I'd go to a conference arranged with great difficulty and expense at a safe hotel, and half of the time, everyone would be talking about football. Gentlemen, I'd protest. Our next consignment of rotary drills is being unloaded tomorrow, and unless we get that permit from the Ministry of Agriculture, some busybody may open the cases, and then... Don't worry, my boy, General Sierra or Colonel Pedro would answer airily. That's already taken care of. Leave it to the army. I knew better than to retort, which army? And for the next ten minutes, I'd have to listen to arguments about football tactics and the best way of dealing with recalcitrant referees. It was then that Don Hernando Diaz's name came up for the first time. I knew of him as one of the country's leading industrialists, but he had an equal reputation as playboy, racing car driver, and scientific dilettante. It surprised me to learn that he was one of us, for he was a favorite of President Ruiz. Naturally, I had never met him. He had to be very particular about his friends, and there were few people who cared to meet me unless they had to. I suspected that something was happening when I took my place in the football stadium on that memorable day. If you think I had no wish to be there, you are quite correct, but Colonel Pedro had given me a ticket. He was unhealthy to hurt his feelings by not using it. There had been a slight delay in admitting the spectators. The police had done their best, but it takes time to search a hundred thousand people for concealed firearms. The visiting team had insisted on this to the great indignation of the locals. The protests faded swiftly enough, however, as the art artillery accumulated at the check. Then a sweating band played the two national anthems. The teams were presented to El Presidente and his lady, and the cardinal blessed everybody. While we were waiting, I examined the program, a beautiful, fully produced affair that had been given to me by the lieutenant. It was tabloid size, printed on art paper and bound in metal foil that gleamed like silver. You could see your face in it, 
and I noticed a number of ladies using it to make their last-minute repairs and adjustments. I also noticed that this special victory souvenir issue had been paid for by an impressive list of subscribers, headed by himself, Don Hernando, who had himself, it seemed, presented 50,000 free copies to our gallant fighting men. If this was a bid for popularity, it seemed rather naive one and surely president ruiz wouldn't let half his army be bottled up in this stadium for the best part of an afternoon these reflections were interrupted by the roar of the enormous crowd as play started for the first ten minutes it was a pretty open game and i don't think there were more than three fights the peruvians just missed one goal the ball was headed out so neatly that the frantic applause from the Panaguaran supporters, who had a special police guard and a fortified section of the stadium all to themselves, went quite unbooed. I began to feel disappointed. Why, if you change the shape of the ball, this might be a good-natured Idaho game. There was no real work for the Red Cross until nearly halftime, when three Peruvians and two Panaguarans, or it may have been the other way around, fused together in a magnificent melee, from which only one survivor emerged under his own power. The casualties were carted off amid much pandemonium, and there was a short break while replacements were brought up. This started the first major incident. The Peruvians complained that the other side's wounded were shaming so that fresh reserves be poured in. But the referee was adamant the new men came on in the background noise, dropped just below the threshold of pain as the game resumed. The Panaguarans promptly scored. And though none of my neighbors actually committed suicide, several seemed close to it. The transfusion of new blood had apparently pepped up the visitors. And things looked bad for the home team. Their opponents were passing the ball with such skill that the Peruvians' defenses were as porous as a sieve. At this rate, I told myself, the ref can afford to be honest. His side will win anyway. And to give him his due, I'd seen no sign of any obvious bias so far. I didn't have long to wait. A last-minute rally by the home team blocked a threatened attack on the goal. And a mighty kick by one of the defenders sent the ball rocketing toward the other end of the field. Before it had reached the apex of its flight, the piercing shriek of the referee's whistle brought the game to a halt. There was a brief consultation between ref and the captains. The crowd was roaring its disapproval. What's happening now, I asked plaintively. The ref said our man was offsides. But how can he be? He's on top of his own goal. Shush, said the lieutenant, obviously unwilling to waste his enlightenment on my ignorance. I don't shush easily, but this time I let it go and tried to work things out for myself. It seemed that the ref had awarded the Panaguarans a free kick at our goal, and I could understand the way everybody felt about it. The ball soared through the air in a beautiful parabola, nicked the post and cannoned in. A mighty roar of anguish rose from the crowd, then died abruptly to a silence that was even more impressive. It was as if a great animal had been wounded was bidding the time for its revenge. Despite the heat pouring down from the not-so-far vertical sun, I felt a sudden chill as if a cold wind had swept past me. Not for all the wealth of the Incas would I have changed places with the man sweating out there on the field in his bulletproof vest. We were two down, but there was still hope. 
A lot could happen before the end of the game. The Peruvians were on their metal now, playing with almost demonic intensity, like men who had accepted a challenge were going to show that they could beat it. The new spirit paid off promptly. The home team scored one impeccable goal within a couple of minutes, and the crowd went wild with joy. By this time I was shouting like everyone else and telling the that referee things I didn't know I could say in Spanish. It was one two now, and a hundred thousand people were praying and cursing for the goal that would bring us level again. It came just after halftime. The ball had been passed to one of our forwards. He ran about fifty feet with it, evaded a couple of defenders with some neat footwork and kicked it cleanly into the goal. It had scarcely dropped down from the net when the whistle blew again. Now what I wondered, he can't disallow that, but he did. The ball, it seemed, had been handled. I've got pretty good eyes and I never saw it, so I cannot honestly say that I blame anyone for what happened next. The police managed to keep the crowd off the field, though it was a touch and go for a minute. The two teams drew apart, leaving the center of the pitch bare except for the stubbornly defiant figure of the referee. He was probably wondering how he could make his escape from the stadium and was consoling himself with the thought that when this game was over, he could retire for good. The thin high bugle call took everyone completely by surprise. Everyone that is except for the 50,000 well-trained men who had been waiting for it with mounting impatience. The whole arena became instantly silent, so silent that I could hear the noise of the traffic outside the stadium. A second time that bugle sounded, and all the vast acreage of faces opposite me vanished in a blinding sea of fire. I cried out and covered my eyes for one horrified moment. I thought of atomic bombs and braced myself, uselessly for the blast. There was no concussion, only that flickering veil of flame that beat even through my closed eyelids for long seconds, then vanished as swiftly as it had come. When the bugle blared out for the third and last time, everything was just as it had been before. Except for one minor item, where the referee had been standing, there was a small smoldering heap from which a thin... I received my dear friends two letters, one for Wednesday and one for Saturday. This is again Wednesday. I do not deserve one for today, because I have not answered the former. But indolent as I am and adverse to writing, the fear of having no more of your pleasing epistles, if I do not contribute to the correspondence, obliges me to take up my pen, and as Mr. B has kindly sent me word that he sets out tomorrow to see you instead of spending this Wednesday evening as I have done, its namesake, in your delightful company, I sit down to, sp to spend it in thinking of you. I'm writing to you, and in reading over and over again your letters, I am charmed with your description of paradise, and with your plan of living there, and I approve much of your conclusion that in the meantime we should draw all the good we can from this world. In my opinion we might all draw more good from it than we do and suffer less evil if we would take care not to give too much for whistles. For to me it seems the most of the unhappy people we meet with are become so by neglect of, of that caution. You ask what I mean. You love stories, and will excuse my telling one of myself. When I was a child of seven years old, my friends on a holiday filled my pocket with coppers. I went directly to a shop where they sold toys for children, and being charmed with the sound of a whistle that I met by the way in the hands of another boy, I voluntarily offered and gave all my money for one. I then came home and went whistling all over the house, much pleased with my whistle, but disturbing all the family. 
My brothers and sisters and cousins, understanding the bargain I had made, told me I had given four times as much for it as it was worth, put me in mind what good things I might have bought with the rest of the money, and laughed at me so much for my folly that I cried with vexation, and the reflection gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure. This, however, was afterwards of use to me, the impression continuing on my mind so that often when I was tempted to buy some unnecessary thing, I said to myself, don't give too much for the whistle and I saved my money. As I grew up, came into the world and observed the actions of men, I thought I met with many, very many, who gave too much for the whistle. When I saw one too ambitious of court favor, sacrificing his time and attendance on levies, his repose, his liberty, his virtue, and perhaps his friends, to attain it, I have said to myself, this man gives too much for his whistle. When I saw another fond of popularity and constantly employing himself in political bustles, neglecting his own affairs and ruining them by that neglect, he pays indeed, said I, too much for his whistle. If I knew a miser who gave up every kind of comfortable living, all the pleasures of doing good to others, and all the esteem of his fellow citizens, and the joys of benevolent friendship, for the sake of accumulating wealth, poor man, said I, you pay too much for your whistle. When I met with a man of pleasure, sacrificing every laudable improvement of the mind or of his fortune to mere corporeal sensations and ruining his health in their pursuit, mistaken man, said I, you are providing pain for yourself instead of pleasure. You give too much for your whistle. If I see one fond of appearance or fine clothes, fine houses, fine furniture, fine equipages all above his fortune, for which he contracts debts and ends his career in a prison, alas, say I, he work, death, in sickness by Leo Tolstoy. This is a legend current among the South American Indians. Gods, say they, at first made men, so that they had no need to work. They needed neither houses nor clothes nor food, and they all lived till they were a hundred, and did not know what illness was. When after some time, God looked to see how people were living, he saw that instead of being happy in their life, they had quarreled with one another, and each caring for himself had brought matters to such a pass that far from enjoying life, they cursed it. Then God said to himself, this comes of their living separately, each for himself, and to change this state of things, God so arranged matters that it became impossible for people to live without working. To avoid suffering from cold and hunger, they were now obliged to build dwellings, and to dig the ground, and to grow and gather fruits and grains. Work will bring them together, thought God. They cannot make their tools, prepare, and transport their timber, build their houses, sow and gather their harvest, spin and weave, and make their clothes. Each one alone by himself will make them understand that the more heartily they, they work together, the more they will have and the better they will live, and this will unite them. Time passed on and again God came to see how men were living and whether they were now happy. But he found them living worse than before. They worked together, that they could not help doing, but not all together, being broken up into little groups. And each group tried to snatch work from other groups, and they hindered one another, wasting time and strength in their struggles, so that things went ill with them all, having seen that this too was not well. God decided so as to arrange things, that man should not know the time of his death, but might die at any moment, and he announced this to them. Knowing that each of them may die at any moment, thought God, they will not by grasping at gains that may last so short a time spoil the hours of life allotted to them. But it turned out otherwise. When God returned to see how people were living, he saw that their life was as bad as ever. 
those who were strongest, availing themselves of the fact that men might die at any time, subdued those who were weaker, killing some and threatening others with death. It came about that the strongest and their descendants did no work and suffered from the weariness of idleness, and while those who were weaker had to work beyond their strength and suffered from lack of rest, each set of men feared and hated the other, and the life of man became yet more unhappy. Having seen all this, God, to mend matters, decided to make use of one last means. He sent all kinds of sickness among men. God thought that when all men were exposed to sickness, they would understand that those who are well should have pity on those who are sick and should help them. That when they themselves fall ill, those who are well might in turn help them. And again God went away, but when he came back to see how men lived now, that they were subject to sickness. He saw that their life was worse even than before. The very sickness that in God's purpose should have united men had divided them more than ever. Those men who were strong enough to make others work forced them also to wait on them in times of sickness, but they did not, in their turn, look after others who were ill. And those who were forced to work for others and to look after them when sick were so worn with work that they had no time to look after their own sick but left them without attendance. The sight of the sick folk might not disturb the pleasures of the wealthy. Houses were arranged in which these poor people suffered and died, far from those whose sympathy might have cheered them, and in the arms of hired people who nursed them without compassion, or even with disgust. Moreover, people considered many of the illnesses infectious, and fearing to catch them, not only avoided the sick, but even separated themselves from those who attended the sick. Then God said to himself, If even this means will not bring men to understand,